we represent the people who have who have taken the chance and we made a mistake and then the desert inn corrects it and and gives it back there is a warm feeling here but you don't think everybody then will want their money back no 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 in the campaign you make a clear distinction between the bold who would be my wife and i and then all the other schmucks who come here to see wayne newton i like wayne newton so my number four is the anima what did you just say I said anima i'm pretty uh, yeah, sure tom anima? tom york's anima the 15-minute uh, short film created all, by Paul Thomas Anderson. it so we know you're saying anima and not enema. I'm, I'm sorry. I heard enema. It's it's because that's two the, different the, things. Well, they're literally like off by like two letters. So. Well, <laughs> what happened to you? You lost your control. I lost control. Yes, you Look lost at you, your control. You're fucking walking around like John Barrymore, yeah. a fucking yeah. pink robe and a fucking uh, a cigarette holder. I'm I lost control. There is an unfortunate amount of um, comparisons but, between he and Daniel Plainview when it comes to buying of the land. <laughs> The to be fair, though, to make a Disney version of There Will Be Blood. I'm abandoning my child. Oh, oh I'm abandoning my child. Uh, Smoke I... is billowing from behind the screen. I'm finished. What? <laughs> that was like kind of a goofy. Anyway, bastard I will in the say, basket. I, I'd be oh, Caleb. What's your type of girl? No, of salad dressing. Yeah, of girl. What's your type of girl? You know what? Don't even answer that. Let's say it's black chicks. Welcome into Film Tank, the weekly podcast that covers both new and classic cinema. On this episode of Film Tank, we discuss the host's top six favorite film conversations. If you would like to get in touch with Film Tank, you can always email us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Film Tank Show. And you can listen to all of our episodes on our website, filmtankshow.com, or on iTunes. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Cheney, Toussaint Egan, and myself, Alex Diekman. Hello there again, everyone, and welcome in to episode 196 of Film Tank. As always, I am Alex Diekman, with my usual friends, Nick Cheney. Hey! And Toussaint Egan. Hello! Hello! So cordial. Yeah. This is nice. Yeah. Good good friends having a good time. Yeah. Man. Thank you for welcoming us into uh to the film tank for the one hundred and ninety sixth time. You're more than welcome, sir. Yeah. It's gonna be nice to have us all just hanging out conversing about mm-hmm. films. Oh yeah. Speaking of that Speaking of that, we have an episode on the conversation that we did and it was really early and it was really good. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah. That is that is factually correct. Mm-hmm. We did our second episode ever on the Gene Hackman film, The Conversation. Yeah. Hey. It's funny how that works out. We sure did. Speaking of conversations. Oh. uh, Tell me more. I know. Ooh. Would you like to know more? A Starship Troopers reference. There you go. We also did an episode on that. Yes, we did. Okay. I don't remember which number it is, but that's that's probably fine. That's all right. Google it. Yes. Search through all of our archived episodes. So, on this particular episode, though, we're going to do our first 
non-year-in-review <laughs> top six episode in quite a while. It's mm. been a couple of years, at least. Maybe two and a half? It's yeah. been a minute. It feels like it. There you go. Yeah. It's been a minute. Yeah. Well put, Tucson. Yeah. <laughs> and... On this particular Top 6 episode, we're going to discuss our favorite film conversations. So it's going to be um, different than the usual Top 6 episodes we've done, where basically each pick is just kind of a thing or uh, something that uh, the person who created the list enjoyed. Where, where this is, there's all kinds of different variables at play. Um, which should actually bring some fun lists, I think. Um, but also, could also create some weird thoughts about things. Yeah. Depending on why a person picked a conversation. <laughs> so, that'll yeah, be good. One of mine, I will say, is an unpleasant experience. <laughs> is it a Lars von Trier one? Uh, spoiler, yes and no, in the sense that maybe that'll appear, but that's not what I was talking about. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I know you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> to keep with the uh, randomized theme we've had going on mm -hmm. recently, which we were planning to do all these randomized things for our 200th episode coming up, thought we would keep with that and randomly decide which order we went in today. And Nick's name came up first. What? That's so random. <sighs> oh, we randomized it. That's the joke. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Okay. So anyways, now we've cleared that up. Nick, start us off, please. Okay. For my number six comes from a little crime film from a man named Michael Mann. Ooh. <laughs> See what I did there? <laughs> uh, yeah. It's from his 1981 film, Thief, where Frank and Jesse have their first real date in the diner. And boy, what a date it was. It, it sure is. It's a 10-minute uninterrupted scene in which uh, the two of them sit down, uh, kind of exhausted by their you know mundane lives. And as James Caan's performance as Frank basically kind of protests her into a relationship and frankly not in a creepy way like he's um he's certainly pushy but mostly in a way that just kind of he sees a connection uh that he shares with uh jesse played by tuesday weld uh and he's trying to get her to take a chance on him and it's kind of a grand romantic gesture by one of the least likeliest romantic people you know and oh yeah that's why it's just for me it's an electric scene uh between the two of them and it's probably the closest thing on my list that veers almost into monologue because mm. it's mostly james con talking but mm. the scene doesn't work without tuesday wells uh, ex uh kind of exasperation and and back talk to keep him going because uh his angsty reactions kind of keep heightening every time she interjects isn't it's been a while since uh we sat down and watched that film together, but isn't that the same scene where he shows her the postcard that's yes. got all the fucking like weird skulls and like yeah. fucked up shit on it? And, I'm just, and I can't remember how he reasoned that and turned that into like that girl eventually going out with him. But I was just like, that is a red flag of anything. But he made it into a slam dunk, and I don't know how he did it. He did. No, I mean that's the thing. He details his life in prison, and he kind of, uh, I would say, very poignantly, you know, repents that, you know, the time wasted 
back then was also time well spent because it let him envision what he wanted and that's the only reason why he's acting so kind of vigorously in this moment because he knows how little time that anybody has left and yes point out that postcard that he made uh and kind of that proto vision board <laughs> that's, of, a, that's a that's a vision board all and, right yeah and um the fact that she kind of uh is won over i think is completely earned in the scene and i, I just absolutely love and obviously it's a forebearer of michael mann sitting people down in diners and letting mm-hmm. them letting them <laughs> hash things out um but for me i feel like it's uh my personal favorite of his because there's that element of romance which almost feels like it's secondary in most man films but in this one is crucial to understanding frank and his motivation and uh just kind of everyday wear through all so uh yeah for me it is the diner scene from michael mann's thief wonderful spoiler i will not have a michael mann scene on my list Whoa! Whoa! damn that would have been the only thing i would have bet on and yet uh so i did obviously put down the bobby d and yeah. al pacino scene because uh, i really i ended up with about 23 uh, specific conversations wow. that I whittled down to six. Mm. So it was on there. But, um, you know, for me, even though I love that scene and I love the movie Heat and I love Thief as well, even though I've only seen it once, um, it just did not pack the same punch that the other six did. So. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I will say one really quick, uh, not honorable mention, but just a caveat, considering it's funny coming from me. But I <laughs> did not purposefully... I should say I purposefully did not include any foreign language films Okay. because at the end of the day, I felt like that could have been a category in and of itself. And also it's as an American and uh, English speaking person, I can't even quite read into the performances in a foreign language film for this particular uh, exercise Mm -hmm. in a way that I can with uh, a movie speaking my native language. Because we're talking about scenes that are a conversation just singular we're not talking about how they actually play into sort of an impression about the work as a whole yeah and just or just dialogue in general so um that said if they were included the works of like abbas karistami or ingmar Bergman absolutely would have made my list but yeah. because of that they will not All right. well put so my number six uh is i think the only uh no that's that's a lie there's oh. another one that also comes in the final scene of a film but this one uh, is the like very ending of a film, um, and it is one of my favorite films of all time. Although a lot of my favorite films of all time are on this list, believe it or not, which makes sense. Uh, but this scene is a film that I've been lobbying for us to do an episode on. Uh, maybe we did do an episode on. I actually I don't remember <laughs> at this point. I don't think we have. Maybe we have. I can't remember. Anyways. If we haven't, that's fine. But this conversation in this film is an all-timer for me. And that is the final uh, conversation where it's all kind of laid out on the line between Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman at the end of The Prestige. So throughout that film, uh, obviously both the characters of Alfred Borden and uh, the great Danton, or what is his name? Vincent Danton. I'm sorry, what's that? Vincent Danton. No. Awesome. He, he he goes by the great Danton, but his name is something else, and it is it is totally uh, escaping me right now. Okay. Anyways, Ooh, what a trick! <laughs> God damn it! So 
the great thing about that final scene is, and if you haven't seen The Prestige, I, I'll try not to... Spoiler! Yeah, I'll try not to spoil have it. Have we done an episode on The Prestige? We have not. I was going to say, I don't think so. That's crazy that we haven't done an episode. But it feels like we should have. Yeah, that's point. like one of my favorite films, one of your favorite I films. I know. Yeah. And it's a film I like. I was going to say, I don't yeah. think Nick hates it. No, I, no, I actually quite enjoy it, but yeah. 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 So anyways, probably more to come on that film. So I'll try to uh, keep it... A little bit spoiler-free, uh, as that is a film that has a lot of twists and turns, which makes sense, as it is a film about magic. But uh, both of these characters have a heated rivalry throughout, and they're not huge fans of each other. Uh, but for different reasons, uh, as early in the film, uh, Hugh Jackman's character believes that uh, Christian Bale's character tied a knot incorrectly and murdered his wife. Uh, well killed her not necessarily murdered her uh but uh as we see throughout the film there's a lot of goings on happening throughout them but the great thing about the final scene in the prestige is all of that is kind of wiped away as a certain action has happened that will end uh their connection together so this is the last time either of these people will be seeing each other and their lives have been intertwined basically for the previous, I don't know, like decade or so. Uh, and the fascinating part about what is happening between the two characters is it's finally them being truthful with each other. Where the entire film, the idea of deception is basically both of their lives. So there's never any real truth happening with any conversations that happen it's all deception and lies and fluff and performance absolutely as is a big aspect of magic um so that is a fantastic finale to a film as you have these two characters um one of them who attempts to have this front the entire film the hugh jackman character uh, he now is definitely vulnerable at the end of this film as he will no longer be seeing Christian Bale uh, as he will be departing, whatever that means. Anyways, so it's just a great, fascinating conversation between the two of them because things are revealed between them that were previously secrets that they now are throwing on the table. And it's just a lot of emotion that comes out in a very... I don't say stale, but like stoic scene. So there's just so much going on in this short minute and a half, two minute scene. And it also ends with one of my favorite lines in, I don't say any film, but films of the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, uh, which is Hugh Jackman talking about why he became a magician. And it was the look on the crowd's faces, which is um, incredible because the entire film all he's thinking about is outdoing him, but at the end of the day, he's, you know, his brain is going back to why he's doing this job in the first place, which is attempting to wow people and excite them. Uh, and obviously, uh, there's some regret happening at the end of this scene. It took courage to climb into that machine every, every night. Do you want to see what it cost me? You didn't see where you are, did you? You went off way around the world. You spent a fortune. You did terrible things. Really terrible things, Robert.
Nolan for nothing. So it's a uh, a really really good film. It's one of Christopher Nolan's best. Uh, definitely a different level of effort, I would say, uh, was put into this film than some of his newer films. And I'm not saying that he's not trying or anything like that, but I feel like um, he was putting a different type of energy into his films at this time than he is now. So. Uh, if you ever want to see a really good film, go see that prestige. But the ending scene uh, between Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale is absolutely fantastic. Yep. I agree. Okay. Yep. <laughs> so for my number six uh, conversation, I was really surprised uh, when I finally sat down and like sort of tallied up the most memorable conversations that I really enjoyed. Because originally I thought that this one would either be placed much higher if not at the very top of my list but when i sort of like looked at everything as a whole and i'm just like no this still belongs in my top favorite like conversations but it's just like it's it doesn't come together as well as the other ones that i'm mentioning on this list so number six is the conversation in the 1997 film gattaca between vincent anton freeman and his brother uh, Anton after so this is like later on in the film after like the, the whole instigating uh, action of this film is that Vincent is masquerading as another man uh, Jerome Morrow in order to basically be inducted into this aerospace um, facility called Gattaca so he can eventually like go like into space right but one of the things that throws a wrench into that right before he's actually going to be going on his own mission um is that somebody's murdered and so it almost uh induces this whole like investigation and then they find out that there is a person who is masquerading as another person possibly and they might be on his tail even though he's not like vincent isn't the one who killed this guy and so now he has to basically um avert the police who are also trying to find the actual murderer and like basically telling the whole story of like how he actually got to that point. Kind of like but, a, but uh, it's been a long time since I saw this movie. It's been since our February favorites, yeah. you know, f- three years ago. Oh, whatever yeah. It's now. Yeah. Um, but in, in addition to masquerading the whole scene, he's also concurrently masquerading as he's pretending to be a different person. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so he, he's, he's doing a lot of work here. Yeah. It's like a, like, uh, you know, like tonally, it almost feels like the talented Mr. Ripley meets uh, Logan's Run, almost like the sort of like sci-fi sort of veneer yeah. over it. But the, the, like, it's nothing like that. It, it's it's uh, it's nothing as duplicitous as that, um, or insincere as that. Um, and so, basically, it turns out that one of the detectives is Vincent's long estranged brother, Anton. We don't learn that until the very end. Um, and he has actually been doggedly trying to like find out who this person was because he saw the picture of the person whose DNA was left over, and it turns out it was his brother. So he's trying to find and track down his brother. And so la di da di da. Turns out they find out who actually murdered the person. I won't tell who it is if you haven't seen it yet. But eventually, like after hours, Anton confronts Vincent and like basically gives this whole spiel about how. Um, their parents died thinking that he had like died himself because he was supposed to like die of like a heart attack at some point. And it turns out he survived and that he has been masquerading as this other person and he's trying to bring him into custody. And then it goes from sort of like the respective like roles of these two men with one of them being a police officer and the other man being 
uh, an impersonator, and then it just gets more granular and gets more personal for the fact that it's really because Anton cannot accept that Vincent has come as far as he has and done something that so many people thought was impossible and that some part of him still like harbors some resentment or animosity for the fact that he feels like even though he was made to be the favorite son because he was not only given his father's name but also he was eugenically cultivated as most other people in the society were Vincent was not and that maybe Vincent has something that Anton doesn't and so that was really that, that, that for me is like a peak of of that film like that's actually the moment right before the next scene which is like one of my favorite scenes in that entire film and it's one of my favorite movies if not my favorite movie of of like all the movies I've ever seen is my favorite movie of all time and so that was why I was so surprised to like look back on that one like conversation and realize even though I I love the film in its totality I think that that one scene even as exemplary as it is it does not measure up alone compared to the other like conversations I have even though I I might like Gattaca more than these other films yeah yeah that makes sense and that that's great because it makes me look forward to the rest of your list too because you have the same sort of kind of moment that I had with the heat conversation Mm -hmm. where I decided, you know, this is great, right? but these ones mean more to me. Exactly. Yeah. 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 By the way, also too, I didn't look it up. So I'm really happy about that. But Hugh Jackman's name in the prestige is Robert Engier. Yeah. Fucking did it. Yeah. Didn't even need the internet. You dog. You. Okay. So that was uh, a good start. I feel like. Yeah. I was concerned that we were going to fumble all over ourselves. No, but that's coming up. We're fucking professionals <laughs> here, so that's yeah, fine. Yeah. Uh, good stuff. Yeah. All right, moving on to number five. Mm, number five. Um, I actually will say just to piggyback of what uh, Toussaint just said about Gattaca, um, I excluded anything from Magnolia from my list because really? that is wow. a movie of conversations. Wow. Yeah, you totally feel like cheating, and, and so and it's my favorite movie it, of all picking, time. It's picking between your favorite children. So at a certain point, I was just like, why even bother championing it? I mean, I guess it's I not necessarily like a like elongated conversation, but the scene between. Uh, John C. Riley and William H. Macy, which ends with him saying, "I have so much love, and mm-hmm. I have nowhere to put it." Yeah. Yep. I would have, I would have bet money that would have been on your list. Yeah, I, there were a million things I could have chosen. Even the uh, or well, not even, but how about the Frank T. J. Mackey conversation with scene? the interviewer? Yes, yeah, no, I mean those were pretty much like if I it could I could have made a list of only Magnolia, number and, one with a bullet, yeah. And because of that, I decided to make a list with. Out Magnolia. Okay, that's so, fair. so in case that seemed like it's shockingly absent, that is why. Yeah. So, all right. My number five is, I think, the only one on my list that is humorous in nature. Okay. So this is a comedy conversation. Mm. Mm. Uh, although I laugh at a few things in another one, but <laughs> that's for another day. Uh, this comes from a 1985 movie by Mr. Albert Brooks, ah. uh, written and directed and, of course, starring him, uh, which he co-wrote with as he often did with his writing partner, Monica Johnson. This is the movie Lost in America, in which him and Julie Haggerty play a couple who are very much a product and also champions of a very Reagan-esque uh, capitalist system as Yay. they are upper, mid-middle class um, who have very cushy jobs and decide... Yuppie wasps? Yeah, I mean, they're not... S- 
it's 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 right on the cusp of the sunset. They haven't quite reached the one percent because if they had, they never would have had this idea anyway. They don't realize that that's why they're disaffected and mm-hmm. not happy. Yeah. Um, so they decide to essentially leave their job and their home and drain their life savings and put it all into what they call very humorously in a different conversation, <laughs> uh, their nest egg. And they decide to take an RV across the world and just live out on the road as they quote unquote easy rider it. <laughs> now, uh, very early in their journey, or I should say halfway through, um, they find themselves in Vegas, which is hilarious because as people who are trying to, uh, you know, go it alone and go, they would go to the most garish and uh, money-tastic place on earth. Uh, and as Albert Brooks uh, bids goodnight to his wife because he's going to retire for the night, he wakes up uh, to find out that his wife played as I said, by Julie Haggerty, has accidentally gambled away their nest egg in the few hours that he was sleeping. (laughs) In order to uh, counterbalance this and hopefully solve this problem, he asked to plead with the casino manager. (laughs) And the following scene ensues uh, in which Albert Brooks, who in his previous job before he gave it all up was an ad exec uh he attempts to sell the casino manager on what he called the boldest experiment in american advertising and the casino manager played wonderfully by a young ish gary marshall oh uh sits across from him and just completely I can see him being a casino manager mm-hmm, and completely be- uh, amusement as he basically lets him get this off his chest with no ounce of actual acceptance uh but Albert Brooks just pleads and says, you know, what if you gave us our money back? <laughs> and Gary Marshall just, you know, like, what? And he's like, yeah, just think about it. People come to Vegas, right? They lose their money, whatever. But when people see your billboard that, hey, this one time you gave back this couple, they're going to want to stay here and gamble away. And he's like, well, we can't give away the money because then that would – and they go back and forth. And it's one of those things where it's like it's 1% of a good idea because it's weirdly unique in the sense that – especially nowadays in the world of viral marketing and whatnot. I was say, but Gary Marshall's basically um – Humoring a telemarketer at this Absolutely, point. and he's yeah. getting some enjoyment out of it until about three minutes into the conversation <laughs> where he's like, okay, I got to go, but tell your wife goodnight. And um, the the ensuing back and forth between them are two uh, legends of television and film, Albert Brooks especially for me, his neurotic shtick, which never feels as whiny as somebody like Woody Allen because he just truly does feel like a desperate man clinging to a, a lifeboat that's never going to come. And just uh, and there's one point he said the line that just always struck with me where he's like, okay, you know, and he's like, well, what if, he goes, we'd be the only people you give the money back to. You don't have to give, he's like, what do you mean, like a gambler? Yeah, because we're not gamblers. You know, that's for other sure. schmucks. You bet. And then Gary Marshall's like, schmucks? He's like, yeah, you know, people who go see Wayne Newton. And then Gary Marshall goes, well, I like Wayne Newton. And then he goes, you know, it was stupid to use an entertainer as a dividing point. <laughs> just <laughs> that line right there, it just kind of oh uh, capitalizes on the comedic timing of Albert Brooks and how yeah. he can really stage a scene. And it kind of is a an artifact of how comedies used to be largely, which were kind of long and drawn out scene, not in a Judd Apatow way, but mm. in where ideas could actually breathe and not just kind of punchline cut, punchline cut, where a character could actually dig themselves deeper into the hole. And we laugh, not because the jokes are, I would say, like 
outrageous, but because uh, both people have such a tight grip on the comedic timing between the two of them that it's able to play out. And I think Lost in America, it's not even my favorite movie by Albert Brooks, though it's up there as one of the greats, but that scene is a wonderful little microcosm, and it's maybe my favorite thing that Gary Marshall has ever done. <laughs> this is really nerdy. He is. But what casino were they Desert at? Inn. Oh. Yeah, and, and they, even, oh. they reference that, too, and they're like, because he's like, what? <laughs> he's like asking Gary Marshall, and he's like, you know, he's like, well, wh- what do you think of when you think of a hunting lodge? He's like, a hunt. I mean, he's like, right. What do you think of when you think of a rest stop? He's like, rest. He goes, exactly. But no one thinks of the desert inn of anything. I mean, he's like, yeah, they do. They think gambling. <laughs> and he's like, well, no, no, no. I mean other things. <laughs> so, but yeah, it was the desert Lord. inn. Good. So, yeah. That's a, uh, that's an interesting time in Las Vegas. Uh yeah, because that was the original strip, right? Or no? Well, yes, it's so it's the strip in the and in the eighties. It still has the gangster stranglehold on mm-hmm. it, which Gary Marshall seems to subtly be playing. Yeah, but not overplaying. Whereas you could actually buy him as just a well, legitimate. Well, there's business. there's a good chance he's not in on it, right? But the people pulling the strings are not corporations at that right. point yeah. it's just groups of people who have given the money to these places to also take the money um which just continues to lend into the ridiculousness of somebody attempting to get their money back when you fair and square even if the game is rigged lost so yeah, yeah. so it's pretty wonderful first of all those people on those signs they won you lost but that's it that's 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 the campaign watch the campaign You gave my wife and I our money back because you reviewed our situation and you realized that we dropped out of society and we we weren't just gamblers and we made a mistake and you gave our money back. Do you know, you couldn't get a room in this place for 10 years. Then everybody will want their money back. All the gamblers will say, hey, go to the Desert Inn and get our money back. Not gamblers. No, you keep all the money. It's just that, that that my wife and I aren't gamblers. That's what I'm saying. That's the distinction. My wife and I represent the few people, and I'll tell you something, there's probably nobody else that's ever going to come and have this happen. So really, probably, we're the only two. We represent the people who have who have taken the chance, and we made a mistake, and then the Desert Inn corrects it and, and gives it back. There is a warm feeling here. But you don't think everybody then will want their money back? No, 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 no. In the campaign you make a clear distinction between the bold who would be my wife and i and then all the other schmucks who come here to see wayne newton i like wayne newton i said wayne newton what were you talking about i heard you say schmuck see wayne newton i like him that makes me a schmuck oh no no I'm stupid to use an entertainer as a dividing point. I just meant all the people that come here carefree on their way to see a show, and my wife and I, who, if you knew us, believe me, you would uh, believe me. You're bold. Yes, yes. Yeah, so absolutely. So, yeah, that was uh, from the movie Lost in America from 1985, and um, that's going to be the last time I say this, but anybody and everybody should watch the first five or so. He only made seven, uh, but if not all, but the first five or so films that Albert Brooks put out that he wrote and directed, because they are all comedic masterpieces. Hmm. Well, that is uh, good to know. I've never seen any of them, so perhaps sometime uh, we can get together and watch one. We'll see. Okay. 
So my number five, uh, believe it or not, features Hugh Jackman again. Oh my god! As he, uh, there's uh, another performer who will be making uh, two appearances on my list. I have one performer that shows up twice, and that's all I have. Okay, but we'll find out who that is. Anyway. Okay, but Hugh Jackman is on my list at number five. And I absolutely love his conversation with James McAvoy in the airplane in X-Men Days of Future Past. Yes. So the reason why this particular conversation is so great (coughs) is because, A, uh, the X-Men are supposed to be these great superheroes, but they also aren't always the smartest. Like, why are they letting Magneto go in an airplane? I, know, I guess I realize they have to get overseas and they want to take him with, so they're kind of vulnerable in that way. But at the same time, putting him in a metal airplane seems like a really bad idea. So, <laughs> uh, this particular conversation is fantastic because this is really the first time that they have been together since the beach incident. Where... Uh, I kind of forgot about that, like, chronological-wise. Mm? Yeah. And... They're both getting some shit off their chest. Oh, yeah. And the great part about this particular conversation, which very similar to the uh, Prestige conversation, is not necessarily very long, but also is very impactful, in my opinion, is that you have the great alter egos of Charles, Xavier, and Magneto as they are meeting in a truly just raw state as they are both trying to go save the woman that they love for different reasons. One of which views her as Raven. The other views her as Mystique. And uh, it's just fascinating seeing the two of them talk about the events that transpired in the previous film, uh, X-Men First Class. And when it finally just boils down to Magneto starting to completely blame Xavier for everything that happened, um, which is kind of fair. (laughs) And you have James McAvoy jumping up to him and screaming about how he abandoned him and left him there on the beach to basically be paralyzed. And you just have Fassbender, as per usual, giving a fantastic performance saying, well, you abandoned everybody, so fuck you, pretty much. And it's just like, yep. Yeah. So um, the back and forth between the two of them is great. The beginning of this conversation starts with uh, attempting to play a game of chess, as per usual, Mm -hmm. between Xavier and Magneto, and turns into a uh, very much car crash, as they usually do, as these people who are meant to be bitter rivals. And yet they can't fly away because they're in a plane. Which is kind Well, of in the plane also, uh, as uh, Magneto is starting to get angry, starts to plummet towards the ground <laughs> as it's crumbling and Isn't basically... Like the one where he like starts like naming off the names of the people who... Yeah. Like, yeah. Yep. yeah. And it's, it's very personal and also at the same time um, very emotional between the two of them. Uh, and what's great about it is an opposite of from the scene from The Prestige... This is... Did I say Hugh Jackman? He's not in this. Yeah. Damn. I mean, he's there. He's there. He's at the very end. And, and I was so going to say, why, he punctuates yeah. the conversation with a good joke. And that's and that's what I was going to get to. Yeah. So, uh, anyways, that's why I was thinking of Hugh Jackman. Yeah. I, my mistake on that. I'm so sorry. So, anyways, 
Uh, Fastbender is completely trashing James McAvoy at the end because he's fucking fantastic as Magneto, and actually in every one of those movies, he's basically a scene stealer uh, throughout the entirety of the film whenever he's on screen, including the new one, which actually is pretty good. Everyone shitted on, but that was actually not that bad. I agree. Yeah. I didn't go see it, so I don't have That's okay. I mean, it's not, like, necessary, but at the same yeah. time, um, for all the fucking mudslinging that happened for uh, Dark Phoenix. It was actually pretty good. Yeah, it was a standard X-Men movie, which I guess people hate, but <laughs> don't pretend like this was somehow worse than the one you love. Yeah. But that's the weird thing, because this new X-Men series is kind of like the Hunger Games in that way, where everybody pretty much unanimously likes the second one, but they're all basically the same thing. Oh, Trick. I thought you were saying this was like the Hunger Games because it has Jennifer Lawrence in it. I mean, you could well, make that Well, there's leap. a correlation there, I think. <laughs> But at the same time, I guess more what I was getting at is that, for the most part, at least critically, Days of Future Past is thought of as the one standout of the new X-Men series, when basically they're all the same shit. But at the same time, this conversation is absolutely fantastic, ends with Magneto, for the most part, relenting and stepping back and just allowing... Charles to sit there and stew in his destruction as has been laid down from Magneto as he is definitely the more uh, I would say angry and powerful uh, emotional wise uh, mutant and then ends with the great Hugh Jackman line of telling Magneto after he made all the dishes and everything fly throughout the airplane and they're all over the floor why don't you pick that shit up <laughs> Uh, and that also is a fantastic moment of foreshadowing. It has nothing to do with the actual conversation uh, that I was referencing, but it's a great moment of foreshadowing because he talks about um, Wolverine's... Uh... Adamantium. Yeah, but he doesn't have it yet. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he said, oh, well, you can't control me. He's like, just imagine if you were metal, which is fantastic. Mm. So it's good yeah. stuff. So anyways, that's a great scene. It's a fantastic conversation between the two characters. Uh, in the middle of a film, but also peaking in terms of their characteristics being shown in one specific scene. So I absolutely love that. Well, and also, too, they were peaking because they were at the highest point on Earth at that moment. Cause the that highest point yes. on Earth. Yes, that they had been because yes, they were on an airplane. Okay. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. just I see what you're getting at. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Yeah. That yeah, was you're, fantastic. You're, and you're, I'm, again, going to apologize because I said Hugh Jackman was... Uh, Involved in that conversation, he wasn't. You know, it's okay. He was um, periphery to it. I didn't lie when I said that two of my participants show up in, uh, or one of my participants shows up in two different episodes. Or, you know what? Forget it. Okay. <laughs> you, you were right that the first round went really good, and now now we're 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 circling the drain here. Yeah, that's why I want to go first. You Thank know? you. I mean, Chisar. we randomized. That's, that was good. Yeah. That was good. You know what? That was good shade thrown, yeah. and it was. Um, it was great. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. Speaking of Tucson, yeah. it's hers, his, hers turn. It's his turn to fuck up. Oh, Lord. So, so good luck. <laughs> good luck. Okay. So my number five um, is from an animated film. Mm-hmm. It is from a Japanese animated film. Mm-hmm. And I know, like, going off of what Nick said before about, like, using foreign films, I wish I had thought about that before. But, I was like, just to stop myself. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I think that at least... This is from one of my favorite animated films, and I think that this line reading, even if it's like the English dub, like is one of the most memorable ways of sort of like encapsulating what is sort of like the the main through line theme of like this film for me. Is like, and 
spoiler, there is another animated film on this as well, too. Um, but this is the first one. So for number five, um, this is from the 1989 uh, animated film Akira. And it is basically a conversation between the main character, one of the main characters, uh, Shotaro Kaneda and uh, Kikyo. Um, and basically Kikyo is this um, this esper, right? This sort of like psychic, right? And basically at the point in this, uh, this film, uh, a lot of events have happened. Uh, the main – the other protagonist who is ostensibly the antagonist of the film, Tetsuo, has basically gone off of his own. is going on a rampage across the city. Um, Kaneda and uh, his friend Kay have basically broken out of prison with the help of Kikyo, by the way. Um, they don't know that yet. Uh, but they end up going back to an old bar that they all used to hang out with like before like all the shit hit the fan. And then Kaneda finds out that – Tetsuo, during one of his rages, actually killed one of their mutual friends, Yamagata. And basically saying, he's like, you know, I don't know what happened to him, but he just started acting like a different person. And then basically what Kaneda does is give Yamagata's bike a Viking funeral and just like crashes it into a wall in order to send Yamagata his bike because they were bikers, right? And then he turns around and he sees Kei, who is being possessed by Kikyo, walking on water. And then he tries to like run after her and he ends up sloshing in the water. And then she ends up like phasing out of existence and stuff like being teleported someplace and then kikyo basically gives him the whole spiel about you know like the thing about akira's power is is that it exists within everyone from the start and that when that power is awakened it is very important how one chooses to use it and that tetsuo has already made his choice and she and the other espers are partly to blame for why tetsuo has gone insane at this point and so then uh kind of to ask like well why are you using k then it's like well because she has an aptitude for it like she is like psychically psychically sensitive so we're basically going to use her to help get rid of tetsuo at this point basically possessing her fighting tetsuo and killing tetsuo and uh basically the line that sort of encapsulates that conversation with for me is like they're people not toys like bring them back to me and tetsuo is our friend not yours if anybody's gonna kill him it should be us and that to me is like the encapsulation of there are so many large-scale events that are happening in this film, but really at its crux is the relationship between Tetsuo and Kaneda and how Tetsuo has sort of harbored both this, this admiration and this animosity towards Kaneda for the fact that he's always been a big brother character to him. But because he has always existed as sort of this fixture that is always punching down on him, like he's always the head of the pack – Tetsuo resents him for the fact that his presence by so many different degrees that he believes inhibits him from being able to grow into his own person. And so now that he actually has this, these powers, this person who has never had power before happens upon these colossal powers, which is like the equivalent of an amoeba giving like the potential of a human being. And he's basically just lashing out at everyone who has ever like he's ever harbored resentment for or who's ever like given him shit for and whether or not it, it, if if that is in reality or if it's only in his own mind right and so really the crux of that film to me is that it is the story of watching your best friend turn into a monster and having to ask the question of whether or not you had a part in 
either consciously or unconsciously in pushing this person into becoming a monster. Hmm. And so what responsibility then do you have to sort of reconciling that? And that's such a that, – that, that line for me, like it's just such a – it flew by me so many times when I when I watched the film originally, but just it wasn't until like, um, at least like when when I was in college and like going back and like watching it that that really sort of like stuck out for me. And now that's like one of my favorite like conversations in like any anime I've ever seen. So hmm. yeah, that's number five. Wonderful. Yeah. Well described. Thank you. You've got your shit together for this episode. Yep. And no one else does. That's okay. So that's good. So moving on to number four, uh, Nicholas, let us know what you've got. Well, I will. Uh, I may have said no Magnolia, but I didn't say no PTA. Hey, 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 hey. So my number four is the Anima. What did you just say? You said Anima, I'm pretty Uh, sure. Tom, Tom York's Anima. The 15-minute uh, short film created all, by Paul Thomas Anderson. so we know you're saying anima and not enema. I'm, I'm sorry. I heard enema. It's it's because that's two the, different the, things. Well, they're literally like off by like two letters. So. Well, <laughs> pretty the much procedure is a little different between the two. I know. Like yeah, one yeah. is watching a music vid and the other one is getting probed. And aren't drained. they sim- Aren't they similar though? Well, yeah. is it a probe? Yeah. I mean, it's a. Probe, drain, flush. I can't believe we're talking about this. Please, this is please, your fault. I've seen it about in a porno. Please before. talk about your. It's actually your... a really common oh trend God. in pornos. Mm. No, like I'm not doing a bit. It is. Uh, it's in uh, to actually be on screen. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, it's in. Um, it's in Alex Dorenzi's Pretty Peaches, and I want to say Pretty it's, Peaches. Yeah, it's a trilogy. There's Pretty Peaches, uh, Pretty Peaches Two, and Pretty Peaches Three. Um, See, if this was Disney, it would have been Pretty Peaches, then like something like Pretty Apples. Aww. See, they would have changed the fruit. But yeah, no, I've, I've seen Pretty Madame Peaches: up. The Return of Jafar. Aww. Ooh, yeah, yeah, they wouldn't get Jafar with that one. All right, um, what is he doing with his staff? Mm-hmm. Lord, don't know. Uh, is that supposed to be a Yagu? Kind of. Okay. <laughs> My number four is the opening scene to Inherent Vice, where ah. Shasta Faye wanders back into Doc Sportello's life for the first time in a long while since they have uh, unceremoniously broke up. And it is a fantastic scene acted out by two heavy hitters, in my opinion, uh, of Joaquin Phoenix and Catherine Waterston. Especially is because this at the, the time, scene where Catherine Waterston is naked or not? No, no. That's okay. the reconciliation okay. uh, way later on in the movie. They, it's been a while. Yeah, sorry. No, they literally, like, they. that's the power of this scene, but they meet in this scene, in the opening scene, and they don't see each other for at least two hours hmm. uh, in, the, in the running time of the movie. And that's when that comes back. Okay. To play, mm-hmm. um, but no. This one is her outlining kind of the exposition to Doc of what her situation is and who and what she's entangled with, and yet it's also so very temporary in the sense that she can't even stay with him uh, because it's so dangerous and so far-reaching uh, mm. this conspiracy and whatnot. So it's this kind of meet cute moment between the two where they don't even have time to truly uh, reconnect, and it's both uh, productive because of that, because they are not able to rehash a lot of drama, and yet also kind of sad because of that, because she's mm. going to him as a private dick and not as uh, an ex-lover. Uh, and yet... The although t- although she 
kind of no, is. No, no, I mean, that's in, in at first glance. Okay, I got you. I mean, okay. obviously, yep. there are other things at play and mm-hmm. whatnot. But then the tensions of that mm. uh, conflict boil over into the scene. And um, it's just home to so many great line readings between the two of them, whether it's the just the literal opening where she said uh, – or where he says, is that you, Shasta? And she says, taken straight from Pynchon's writing, uh, thinks he's hallucinating. You know, and it's just this kind of uh, elegant prose that's both meant to kind of represent the stoner ennui of the whole thing and yet also just the kind of – I don't know. I would say pretentious show-off-ness uh, of the writing in general, and I absolutely eat it up. Um, and, and you also kind of get a little decoder ring of a dialogue for the film as a whole because uh, at one point she says, uh, it's not what you're thinking, Doc. And he goes, that's okay. Thinking comes later. And that's mm. kind of the mantra of the film itself. Mm. And um, and it's still technically like a – it's another one of those on my list that's like a 10-minute scene all in all because there's a lot that gets covered. And it's also one shot once they leave from the house onto the street as they're still conversing uh, as she gets into her car as he then uh, – as she drives off and then he walks away. And that's all – um, so we have so much in this scene, whether it's the performances between the two, the very frail and fraught dialogue between the two that they're expounding at each other, and also the cinematography uh, paired with the actual shot on celluloid uh, grain. Uh, it's just some of the most beautifully caught luminescent night shots I've ever seen in a movie. Um, it, this opening scene is my version of like ASMR where like I can put the scene on and be put to sleep, not because I'm bored or whatever, but because this is like my happy place of, of cinema as a whole that is like soothing to me. Do you know, yeah. cause I am thinking back to that scene now and thinking about a Lubezki trait of, cause you're talking about the lighting in it. Um, did they use this? It's not natural light, but the only lighting in the scene, because I know the if scene you're speaking of. They and didn't it, use it. They okay. made it look like it. So, yes. It is a, it's a, like, it's a weird thing because uh, that scene feels poorly lit. Yes. Because he has no lights on in his house. Right. But yet there is some moonlight coming in somehow right. because he lives by the sea. Which is what I'm getting at, yes, that it, that it feels poorly lit, but not in a bad way. No, no, and that's the thing is, like, the faces come through in it. Mm-hmm. And then even when he goes to, to get a beer out of the fridge and the way that just interrupts the uh, almost noir-tinged uh, opening of it all. And um, and that's what I love is that it's not beholden to a particular throwback look. It's not like you wanted to shoot it uh, to look like a movie from that era, even though it ends up kind of being Altman-esque in its kind of detached uh, form. But uh, I just know, yeah, it's it's that it's one of the most gorgeous uh, lit scenes ever. And the lights, whether it comes from the moon or from the harsh glow of the fridge or some of the outside activities, uh, it's just absolutely gorgeous. And of course, Catherine Waterston is also lit wonderfully as she stands on the threshold uh, in a much different way than he is. And mm-hmm. uh, there's just so much going on there that I can watch that scene over and over and over and never get bored. It's a fantastic scene because um, to go with the theme of that that film, you assume as a viewer, especially if you do not know the story prior, 
that Catherine Waterston's going to be a major player in the film. No, and yet she's like, her character is uttered in almost every mm-hmm. scene because she's obviously integral to Doc and to the plot. But no, yeah, once she leaves there, and that's what also makes a, like almost the fatality of that scene. And I don't mean that in that literal death sense, but just in the, you know, this is the last time we might have a conversation. Uh, it just makes it even more potent because she... There was a there was a very real chance that she would not have appeared for the rest of the movie, and um, it certainly holds off to the right moment to actually let her reappear, um, and it just makes their kind of last conversation uh, just all the more somber for it. Uh, hmm. I should say their first conversation no, before, okay. but yeah. but yeah, I just think it's an absolutely gorgeous scene, and I very much love it. Hmm. So, I did some soul searching. Okay. On. Good. Probably my oh. favorite director of all time, which oh. is Martin Scorsese. Okay. And you realize he's canceled. No. Good. So because he's not. Correct. Still kicking it, even though he did a lot of cocaine back in the good old days. But but I will say, <laughs> even though I feel like it feels like a calling card. Conversations aren't necessarily what he does best, I think, in his films. I think a lot of his best work is done with showing the audience. Even though he has a lot of spoken word throughout his films. Yeah, and very iconic ones. Absolutely. Uh, I don't necessarily know if actual one-on-one or even group conversations are what gets the job done for Scorsese. Um, that being said, Goodfellas and Casino both have some really fantastic conversations in it, albeit not as impactful as other films in terms of delivering on one-on-one or even group dialogue. That being said, um, to go kind of the opposite direction from you with Magnolia, mm-hmm. I felt... Thinking back on all of the great conversations that happened in the movie Casino, which is my favorite movie of all time, I felt obliged to include one on my list because I think there are plenty to choose from. Um, And the one that I ended up selecting that I thought was actually the most important, even if it's not the most iconic between these two characters, is the conversation between Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro that takes place in Robert De Niro's house kind of halfway through the film which I feel like to go with a theme of a very important melding between characters, as I talked about in my last conversation, the X-Men one, um, this is when things start to go to shit. And really, De Niro's character of Sam Rothstein is on top of the world before everything starts to crumble down on him. And it's mostly happening because of his best friend, Nikki Santoro, who is on the way up while Sam Rothstein is now somewhat on the way down, but they're supposed to be on the same team. So they're having a weird meeting happening at his house um, where they actually had to use all these weird signals to actually have this meeting take place because the feds and the local police are completely onto them at this point. But again, um, they are both doing very well at this moment halfway through the film. And yet they have this meeting at Sam Rothstein's house and basically they just start calling each other out on their shit. 
And um, when you've got two gangsters who are playing different kind of gangster roles um, starting to turn on each other, you know it's going to go bad really quickly. Mm-hmm. And this is just the start of it because it's such a weird conversation because both are trying to show respect for each other while shitting on them at the same time. So you have all these weird discussion points happening throughout um, and it eventually just turns into a full-on just mud tossing between the two of them. At one point, Joe Pesci brings up how shitty of a husband Robert De Niro is. And true. he starts to talk about... He, he like, starts to, like, kind of, like, make it seem like Robert De Niro's starting to act like he's gay. Talking about him wearing a pink robe and having a cigarette holder. Uh, it, it, gets, it gets very bizarre really quickly. That's and it's a, great because this such scene... a granular detail to like pick at somebody for. Well, I think, and really quickly mm-hmm. between the two of them, I think what's fascinating about their arcs in that movie, and I would say the convergence points of that scene is mm-hmm. that uh, Rostin is, or I should say, Joe Pesci's character mm-hmm. is mad at uh, Robert De Niro's character because he's, he thinks he's getting soft. Yeah, and he's changing because of it. And Robert De Niro's character is mad at Joe Pesci's character because he's not changing right. and dialing it down because of the location that we're. Well, in. and not only is he not changing. He's going so far the other way that he's making trouble for him. Which would have probably worked anywhere else but Vegas, but well, not anywhere else, but in general. Like. The, the, the problem is, is that, and why it worked out so well for everybody previous to this, it was all under the radar. Like, it was not people's perception that gangsters were running the show and murdering people behind the scenes and taking out the garbage and whatever. They thought they were going to Las Vegas to bet on things, see shows, have a good time, drink, whatever. And yet, they're fucking it up on their own. Um, and both of them think the other party is the one that is doing it. And um, more than anything, the dialogue and the actual intent for the two characters is fantastic. But De Niro and Joe Pesci at close to the high... I mean, it's definitely the height of Joe Pesci's career, in my opinion. Even though he won an Oscar for Goodfellas, uh, his performance in Casino is so fucking over the top that it is just perfect, in my opinion, for the kind of character actor that Joe Pesci was throughout his career. I mean, he made a living off of playing these ridiculous, whiny, like talented Gilbert Godfrey characters throughout his career. And yet, De Niro, this was kind of towards the end of his high point. I mean, it was right before Meet the Parents came out, which was (laughs) the beginning of the end. Mm. And One of history's darkest hours. Meet the Parents isn't that bad. Actually, yeah, that was like a succession for good reason. But 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 it became a thing of, oh, this is, he can do this. Mm -hmm. This is the turn. Yeah. Yeah. He, He can... He can be funny. That's how we get little fuckers. Oh, God. So that scene is great. A really easy scene to pick out between the two of them is the scene in the desert that takes place later, which is a great scene, but there's not really much happening in there other than a bunch of shouting at each other. So both are great, but this particular scene is absolutely fantastic just because um, it is truly the moment where we have reached the top of the mountain and now... We can't stay here forever, so we've got to go fucking down. And um, they start to go down, and it uh, if you haven't seen the film, it uh, keeps going bad. 
You know, I don't know what it is, Sammy, but the more I talk to you, the more I feel like you just don't want to go along with me. Is that it? Oh, I don't want to come. So. I don't want to come along with you. Just I'll be so. honest right. with you. Fine. I don't want to be involved in anything you're Fine. talking about, okay? I just want to run a square joint. That's it. I just want my license. I want everything nice and quiet. That's it. Be quiet like this. I'm the boss. That's quiet. That's all taken out of context. Yeah, I have no control over that. Control. Ronnie and Billy were right there to tell you well, exactly what happened. Well, back home, they don't know about fucking control. That looks bad. Looks bad? I'm going to yeah. tell you what looks bad. Every time you're on television, I get mentioned. That looks bad. That looks what bad. What the fuck happened to you? Will you tell me? What happened to me? What okay. happened to you? You lost your control. I lost control. Yes, you Look lost at your you. control. You're fucking walking around like John Barrymore. Yeah. A fucking yeah. pink robe and a fucking uh, a cigarette holder. I'm, I lost control. You know, I don't want to bring this up, but you've been treating a lot of people with a lot of disrespect, even your own wife. My wife? Yeah. Now, what does she have to do with well, all Well, she this? came to see me. She was upset about a lot of things, especially that whole fucking diamond, that Lester diamond incident. All of a sudden, you're the shoulder to cry on? Did you at least tell her about your little role in that whole situation? No, I didn't. Well, go with that, dude. That's not the fucking Listen, point. The point is that she's upset. She's and you got a fucking problem. I would appreciate it if you stay out of my personal life, okay? You wouldn't like it if I did it to hey, you. She came to Please, talk to me. Please, don't do it to me. She came to talk okay? to me, and I, what was I supposed to do? Throw her hey, out? Just stay away from her. It's none of your business, okay? There are certain oh, things you don't do. It's none of my business. A week ago, it was my business. Now, it's none of my business. In other words, when you need me to take care of something for you, then you need me. Yeah, that's right. The way you need me to vouch for you as a citizen and get you out of one of your jams. I'm gonna have to straighten out what you just did with this guy. This guy is gonna run to the FBI your now. Your fucking head is getting bigger than your casino. That's your problem, pal. So, yep. Fabulous film, great conversation, and, um, oh, God, I'm so scared for the Irishman. Oh, man. Yeah. I'm so afraid. Yeah. I haven't shown any footage yet, yeah. and that's not good. Those behind yeah. the scenes uh, pictures are quite hilarious. Um,. I'm, I mean, I'm, I, I mean, I, I can't judge a film by just like you know, you know like a especially like a, considering how much work they're going to have to do it in post anyway. Yeah, yeah. On the, but, but will the, that post the matter? yeah the first <laughs> their platform shoes are just hilarious to me. Just, the first um, it wasn't a preview. It was. You remember what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, was, the trailer it, where they just have past the, quotes. The, from yes, yeah, the the voiceover where it's like, "Yes, I do this." Yes, it feels like, and we were talking about this before we started the episode, but it feels like the Lion King where they're not showing you much because it's going to be bad. Yeah, they're they're working on that up into the hour, up yeah. into the hour before it goes up. Like, holy shit! But anyways, if you want a fantastic. Scorsese film, mm. Casino is there, and it has many great conversations, including that one. Yeah. Moving on to Tucson with his number four. Okay, so my number four is the second and last animated film um, on my list. It is from the 1995 animated film Ghost in the Shell, oh. directed by Mamoru Oshii. And it is basically the final conversation between uh, Major Motoko Kusanagi and the Puppet Master. And I know that this is... I'm flexing this as a conversation between two people because it turns out there is um, there 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 is another person who's an onlooker mm-hmm. who's basically Bato that is yeah. um, hooking up the remains of um, Kusanagi's body to like the body that actually houses the puppet master so that she can actually like talk to this person yeah. who like throughout this entire movie has been just like a cat and mouse game of the puppet master supposedly committing these criminal acts, but really all it's been has just been a ploy to sort of elicit the response of section nine in particular her so that eventually they could meet at this one point. And why exactly did this 
being and this entity want to meet Kusanagi for the first time. And Nick, you and I, we actually like watched the film like yeah. Uh, yeah, a couple. Yeah, you showed of... it to me finally uh, three or four years ago. Yeah, before the uh, the remake came out, and it's just it's one of the it's probably like one of the most memorable conversations that I've watched um, in an anime film alongside with the Akira one. But this one probably like it had me reeling because I was trying to like really like wrap my brain around like what the puppet master actually wanted and what this actually meant in sort of like a, a grander context. And it sort of like sums up the themes of the film of like the, the duality of like humanity and technology and how they advance with one another and what is necessary in order to like move past a point of like mutual limitations into becoming something that is greater than either one of them is, is possible of, of, of entertaining and really just like, what does that look like? And it's like, we have no idea. And I guess that was like my first uh, preliminary introduction to the idea of the singularity before the singularity was even in vogue. Um, and yeah, that's, that's always gonna, gonna, gonna stick out to me. Like the imagery of that, um, how that conversation ends, how it's punctuated um, and what transpires, uh, between the two and like what they share in that conversation uh still really resonates me resonates with me to this day like i've had conversations with colleagues right uh the like a little aside for this right where a colleague of mine uh watched ghost in the shell the original shortly before uh the original film came out right and he was totally shitting on it. Just did not like that film at all, right? And that's totally fine. It's like I'm the kind of person where I can enjoy something, but I do believe that there is a value in listening to a smart person talking about what they may not have liked about one of my favorite things mm. simply for the fact that then it allows me to sort of look past whatever glossy veneer I might have towards it and really being able to wrestle with what exactly what is what particularly do i like about that film it's not that it 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 somehow disabuses me of my enjoyment but rather forces me to sort of fine hone what it is about that film it's hard to be fair against things that you really really like yeah i know it was like and and and, no no i'm I'm, I'm, exactly i'm I'm, 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 exactly here what you're saying exactly yeah Yeah. so like i think that it's valuable to have those sort of conversations it's when those conversations move outside of being a critique of the work but rather the people who consume said work that that conversation absolutely has no it it yields absolutely no benefit to either person it just it's just just shitting over the people who like the scarlett johansson i'm not even doing that it's like no it's like i don't i'm like i know i'm sure that there are people who enjoy that film and i don't mean anything against people for that there's not many it's i know i i know i i literally walked past my bookcase earlier today and saw the the art book that I bought for that film mm-hmm. simply so that I could write about that film when I needed to. I have not cracked it open since. I, will, I, I have no compulsion to crack it open, let alone to watch that film again. Because if anything, watching that film and then coming back to the 1995 film, there were subtleties and nuances that I did not pick up in the original that are just totally lost in in the remake even though they are basically recreating the exact same scene but just these these crucial differences are what elevate so many of those relationships and so many of those 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 moments it, it's like it's it's a it's it's like a 
it's like the cinematic like the the remake is like the cinematic equivalent of silly putty where you put it on a newspaper and you get like a vague impression but it's not the actual thing and you can only maybe see half of like the actual like ink and the actual context itself is like oh this is the the vague impression of these ideas but not really the actual like subtext or the context of like what actually makes them interesting so yeah but sorry to get off on a tangent no, no, no. like that like but that conversation though um is another one of those moments that is left that 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 is is an enduring part of why i love that film why i love the ghost in the shell like franchise as a whole and one of those things that was just tragically just mutilated on the cutting room floor with regards to the rupert sanders production so yeah Okay, halfway through. Yay, we did it. I was going to say, I feel like we're having a good time and uh, definitely been some good examples so Let's far. keep it going. Absolutely. Moving yeah. to number three. My number three is, I believe, let's just see here. Yep. It is the only ending I have on my list. Okay. And it is essentially, I mean, there's a few passing scenes of nothing, basically, just in the grand scheme of things, but this is the final confrontation and conversation between two important characters in Lars von Trier's Dogville. Mm. Uh, For those who have never seen it, I'll kind of give a very brief glimpse into it and what is happening in the culmination of the movie, but uh, essentially, Dogville centers around a woman named Grace, uh, played by Nicole Kidman, who happens in uh, a to take shelter and refuge upon this nice little American town. And it's a very small town, and it only inhabits maybe a dozen people or so. And also you should keep in mind, in case you ever want to watch Dogville, which you should because it's a masterpiece, uh, that the movie is shot uh, as a faux play, basically. It's uh, shot on a soundstage where there is no set, and it's a chalk outline of like where the rooms are. At the vill- and so you're always... Uh, cognitive of the fact that these are actors just performing lines, but they are performing the hell out of them and whatnot. A formal experiment, to be sure, but one that completely works because of Von Trier's master hand. Master hand. <laughs> so, I, like, I like that you had like a snidely whiplash moment. <laughs> They're like, Whoa! <laughs> he's over tying the fucking woman to the train tracks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, as you would Grace... never do something so. Yeah. So pedestrian. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that basic. Yeah. So as Grace uh, finds this town, at first her effect on the town is positive, but like in any Von Trier film, uh, he starts to investigate whether that's just a facade for deeper and more unsettling human truths that are uh, always at bay and usually wanting to come out. And so her time at Dogville then takes a turn for the worse, not mm. Uh, through fault of her, but because of her. Hmm. And the town resorts to their baser impulses, and uh, it's just a nightmare for her by the end. So at the very last, uh, shall we say, chapter, because it's actually told in chapters, um, you found out in the beginning of the movie that she was running away from her father, who was a gangster, because it takes place circa 1915, I think it's during the Depression or so. Okay. Um, and that's who she was running away from. So at the very end of the film, uh, her father comes to collect her when he finds where she's been hiding and whatnot. Hmm. And the father is played by James Caan. So here, that's my repeat performer. Um, and the two of them have a conversation about the town of Dogville in their car as they decide what to do with the denizens of this once idyllic small town in the harshest of uh, climates and conditions. So the two of them talk 
both at each other and but yet a, kind of about philosophical ways of the world and it essentially comes down to a conversation about the nature of arrogance and how she doesn't want to go home with him even though she could have anything she wanted and she could because he'll let her back basically is what he's pleading with her uh, and she could have the power by extension through him of what that comes with um, and they can not only leave Dogville behind, but they could just get rid of it because why save a town and let it exist who would do the things that Dogville and his citizens end up doing to her? Um, and so she calls him arrogant, and it starts this kind of chain reaction of this father-daughter conversation, which both simultaneously sounds like an actual child-father argument, you know, as you know, both sides uh, you know, have points, but also becomes an actual dialogue about humanity's worth as a whole, because he then throws it back at her and says, you, uh, in letting them live and letting them do these things to you, are arrogant to think that that is somehow a better thing to do, because the uh, idea that you would not permit yourself to do the things that you're letting them do means that you're finding yourself superior to them and mm. isn't that the most arrogant thing of all and mm. of course she takes umbrage to that because while that's a didactic way of looking at it uh it doesn't leave room for mercy and then he says there's time for mercy and they go back and forth and it's just one of the most fascinating conversations i've ever seen uh and which What's great is that it's, uh, it takes place in that car, so the people who are really going to be at the end of this conversation, as far as the receiving end, are in no way included in this dialogue, nor should they really have a, a say because of their actions uh, as reformed in the movie But by that point. But it also just feels like Von Trier himself playing God with his own characters mm-hmm. and wrestling in his mind whether they deserve to suffer or not mm-hmm. and whether they bring it upon themselves. And it's just a fantastic scene between the two of them. Um, and it's Nicole Kidman, James Caan, two very fantastic actors. And, uh, yeah, I absolutely love it. And you can't really say for certain which... When you're saying that it's, I mean, it's, it, I, I, I haven't seen this film, and yeah. I really do want to watch this film with you because I've heard rave things about it, both from you and from other people um, that I, um, that I respect with regards to like Von Trier's work. I've only seen like a couple of his stuff, right? Yeah. Um, but what sounds like when he, when when you're talking about Von Trier basically playing God with his characters, I know there is the tendency to sort of look to, um literal analogs one-to-one analogs between a work and their creator with regards to the viewpoints that are sort of um voiced in that sort of regard i don't mean to go off on on a tangent with this because it's just it's it's something that's been swimming in my brain lately with regards to a lot of criticism uh with regards to works as like oh it's like these works are being so political and it's like and it, it really comes down to like people not understanding the difference between um politics and ideology as they reflect lived experiences and beliefs of the human experience that we all sort of share and partisanship which speaks to a far more literal and far more like in in entrenched like 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 sort of a a, a body between like two uh, like ideologies clashing and stuff like that it's 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 it's, it's, it, it boggles my mind that we're we're swimming in this sea of 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 terminology that no one can really come to a, a a consensus about either through like bad faith arguing or from just honestly a a, a 
deficient liberal arts education all yeah. across. I was like, I don't need to learn no fucking literature and shit. I'm just like, maybe you should. Maybe you should learn something about ethics. Um, but anyway, like, no. sort of, sort of <laughs> circling this back is like, when you say that it's it's von Trier like playing God with his characters, I'm. It's easy to sort of like read into that. I was like, oh yeah, I was like, well, one of these is supposed to be the the devil on von Trier's shoulder, and another is supposed to be the angel on von Trier's shoulder. I was like, no, I don't think it's like that. It's like I think it's really just sort of like teasing out a thought experiment, and it just happens to be an idea that exists in your mind at that time, and you're just like watching it play out like a like a tennis game between these two like opponents and and seeing like where their mutual strengths and weaknesses sort of like balance out with one another and really it's not about whether one of them wins out or not it's really just about like trying to to tease out the meaning in between that struggle that's at least my read of oh, like yeah. what you're talking mm-hmm. about that Absolutely. and it's like yeah that's well and i think the ending of dogville uh to kind of loop it back around too but i'll say this if it if uh, the house that Jack built was a great indication, in, in my opinion, of uh, Lars von Trier's playful side, oh, showing Jesus how he Christ. doesn't take his characters as seriously as yeah. people accuse him of. Mm-hmm. I think Dogville is a great example of the opposite, which is that he takes his characters so seriously that to call him a provocateur is to slight what he's actually doing behind yeah. the scenes, which is that he almost takes great pains to even wrestle through what – resolution he comes up with his characters and what morally it says about them. And but his intentions t- and sentiments can like vacillate between the two. Like yeah. he's like he strikes him as a guy who is very nihilistic and also he like But he, he doesn't deny the Nobody existence. hates him as much as he hate, hates himself and yeah. he also hates his audience and he just knows how to take the piss out of both himself and other people. Going off of what Nick was saying though, I'm I think it's pretty easy and clear that he's doing both. Like, I mean, yeah. the idea of him being a provocateur and just for the most part clearly embracing that, well, at the same time, not. I mean, I think it, you can do both. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is that to label him as one thing is to, for example, look at that scene in Dogville where you see two people on different sides of the car arguing their philosophies and thinking that he is only one of them, you know. And- yeah. So what is it? What is it, the thing, the thing that you don't like about me? It was a word you used that provoked me. You called me arrogant. To plunder, as it were, a God-given right, I'd call that arrogant, Daddy. But that is exactly what I don't like about you. It's you that is arrogant. That's what you came here to say? I'm not the one passing judgment, Daddy. You are. (laughs) No, no. You do not pass judgment. Because you sympathize with them. A deprived... Ch- and that's what I love about that scene in Dogville. And that movie in general, because frankly, I could have chose a lot of scenes from that movie, because mm. it's a pretty much dialogue-driven movie. Mm-hmm. Well, that is one that, uh, as Tucson was mentioning, we definitely need to all get together and watch sometime. Woohoo! And, uh, when we got three hours to spare. We'll figure it out. That's like the uh, new film from uh, the guy who did Bo Tomahawk. Yeah, Dragged Across Concrete. Yeah. Great movie. Lengthy. I've heard lengthy, yes, and yes. feels like it. Oh boy, in a good way, in my opinion. It feels but... like being dragged across concrete. Mm. Mm. Tucson's gonna freak out when he sees that movie if he sees that movie because there's white face in that movie. <sighs> what the fuck? Yep, and I'm not like exaggerating. Like, no, but that's mm-hmm. a that's a thing, I and it's in that. that movie. Sure, which is 
kind of made me laugh because of how <laughs> much Craig S. Zoller is getting shit for being so, uh, quote-unquote, conservatively rigid in his uh, presentation of his characters and ideologies, which you already addressed as far as like how people get so caught up on the characters as mouthpiece for the artist. It's kind of crazy, and I agree with that right. to Von Trier and Craig, Craig S. Zoller. But for him to include two black characters doing white faith for a purpose, um, I just thought, just you know what, giggles. whether I disagree or agree with Craig S. Stoller's politics, I got to hand it to the man. He knows how to get the audience walking out. So continue. <laughs> okay, so um, I said before we started recording that I included a Tarantino uh, film yeah. on mine. And I did, and it is my uh, second and uh, yes, second closing scene of a film, mm. uh, and it is the final scene. Uh, and this is the closest I had to a monologue, as you were saying okay. earlier, Nick. Yep. Is it was tough to toil over, but this is definitely a conversation. But it is more of one person talking to another person, uh, and that is the final uh, scene in the diner. In Pulp Fiction, uh, there's the conversation between Samuel L. Jackson and Tim Roth. So Tim Roth, uh, as a, a absolutely fantastic loop around, is in the opening scene of Pulp Fiction as he is about to... Stick up the place. Yes, he's about to rob a diner. Mm. Uh, he's having a conversation with... I'm blanking on his the lot of diners. His girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. yeah. his girlfriend. Funny. Yes, he's playing a character. His name is Pumpkin, and her yeah. name is Bunny. And you don't actually know. Sorry to, sorry to cut you no, off. No, 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 man. But okay. what's interesting uh, is that you see that scene um, for the first time at the beginning of the film that opens it, and then it just – I believe that it then smash cuts to uh, the title card, which is Pulp Fiction, and then mm-hmm. like there's other scenes that are sprinkled about like in um, – non-sequential order Mm -hmm. and then it ropes back and you realize like oh wait they're all at the same diner that's what's going on and Mm -hmm. you actually like it's it's like a um it's not a brick joke right it's like a no it's just a non-linear movie with uh variable vantage points what's that what what, what's a good tie-in what is what is it called when you're you 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 make note of something at the very beginning and it's just such a innocuous little detail, and then it mm. ends up panning out and like. That's like, a brick joke only if the resolution of it is actually still innocuous. So oh. like it can't have a grand effect on the plot, which that obviously does because okay. because they're in the same diner that changes their entire plans mm-hmm. to rob the place. Yeah. So that would be something like you're introduced it in an early scene, and then it shows up in the most random of ways, but also still. Uh, fails to really uh, at least that's, have an, that's have what a... i've always thought of as a brick joke okay yeah but yeah anyway so what is fantastic about the actual finale of this film and the final conversation between samuel L. jackson and tim roth as you have tim roth setting the tone for the film at the very beginning as he and his girlfriend are having a really random conversation making a bunch of racist remarks and then deciding to stick up a diner. Uh, and then at the very end of the film, you realize that Samuel L. Jackson's and John Travolta's characters are in that same diner. Obviously, we've seen their characters progress through a entire morning. And a lot of shit has happened for the two of them. And a lot of shit will continue to happen. Uh, specifically to John Travolta, who ultimately meets his demise later on in the story. Although he still is involved in this part because it's earlier. Whatever, it's fine. Anyways, so... You have uh, the stick-up, which is being held by Tim Roth, 
And he basically attempts to steal the briefcase that John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson are after throughout the film. Um, and, and Samuel L. Jackson's not down with that. So he basically ends up then sticking him up and having a gun pointed at him. He ends up having to sit down in the booth and basically is forced into listening to Jules talk about what actually brought him to the point where he's going to have a stick up, but he's not aiming Correct. to really kill anybody in the situation. He's trying to defuse it. So what's fascinating about this conversation, though, is that you have a small time crook and a career criminal on opposite ends of the spectrum, especially because Tim Roth gives the impression of someone who is going into this lifestyle and wanting to become a career criminal. And Jules, who has reached the point where he... I've already... He's already gone through his career. He's literally trying to leave. Right. He no longer wants to participate. Right. And he has just had a... Um, could be thought of as a... Divine intervention. I was going to say, thought of as complete luck or as he is seen at divine intervention. Um, but the fascinating part about this final conversation is the fact that he attempts to then provide enlightenment to Tim Roth's character, uh, which is fascinating because this, it's a film that, although there are definitely moments throughout that, it's pretty incredible to me that that was decided to be the final scene of the film. Um, it's fantastic, and I chose it to be one of the best conversations because it is a fantastic scene. It's one of the best scenes that Quentin Tarantino has ever written. I would agree. Um, but at the same time, um, if you see every other event that happens throughout that film, if you were just a film viewer, you would not think that they would end up in the diner at the final scene. You would think realistically would end up at the final scene with Bruce Willis riding off into the sunset on his motorcycle mm -hmm. or something like that. Yeah. But um, this, this conversation where Samuel L. Jackson's character of Jules is really just getting down to it and describing that here's this dialogue bible verse mm -hmm. that he keeps on repeating all the time and basically he's made up yeah it's not real right uh and he describes that he just said that to his prey much like jack nicholson's joker yeah. said his line to the people he was going to I kill just thought it'd be some stone cold cool shit to Correct. say before you cap somebody but then i actually started thinking about it more yes <laughs> yeah um and has the fantastic walk-off line from Samuel Jackson, where mm -hmm. he talks about how he views himself and he believes he's one thing, but he's yeah. really trying to be the shepherd. Right, like he yeah. wants to be, he wants to be not necessarily good, yeah. but he wants to be something opposite from what he yeah, is. He's, he's like, it's like you know, maybe like I'm the, I'm the shepherd and you're the flock. And it's the world that's all fucked up. But that's actually not true. It's like what's true is that you are the weak and I am the tyranny of evil men. But I'm trying very real hard. hard to be the I'm shepherd. trying yeah. real hard to be the shepherd. But but then thanks for making me look even better because I mean the, the the reality is is that I didn't come with that 
in depth of it because right. I was not prepared for this episode, right. obviously. But <laughs> but I haven't no. seen that film or seen that scene in ages. And yet you still remember. I still remember that line, and it's like it still sticks with me. And what is great about that particular conversation is that you see Tim Roth's. It's not necessarily his words that are, but it's the his, the sentiment, the, the, the gravity. I was going to say. The looks he gives off of his face mm-hmm. as he is actually pondering what Samuel L. Jackson's character is saying, right. and then he leaves with his girlfriend, and he takes the money, obviously yeah. not the suitcase, because even though Samuel L. Jackson's winding out, he's still got to deliver his yep. fucking job. Yep. Um, it is a great walk-off scene in a film that is absolutely fantastic, and um, just a uh, wonderful moment to end on, and a, a great conversation between two characters who are on opposite sides of the spectrum at that point when if you would have had the same conversation the day before it could have been totally different oh yeah so totally different person so yeah that was wonderful i will say um this is really random but uh i definitely want to bring up another conversation Mm -hmm. that i thought of um and i was surprised that i thought of this one and liked as much as i did but i think it is super impactful and it is wonderful and it's actually a uh, conversation from the movie The Florida Project. Ah, yeah. I still haven't seen that. It's a really good film. Great movie. And uh, Willem Dafoe, who plays a wonderful character who is definitely a conflicted slumlord throughout, who is making money off of these poor people having to live in his hotels as a slum, but at the same time, genuinely does feel for these people. And protecting them yes. and standing up for them. So it's, yeah, for sure. Uh, at one point, the film takes a turn and has him basically having to fend off a child predator. Mm. And it's on the happiest place on earth. In the happiest <laughs> place on earth. Lord. And there is a man out there trying to get some of to the children, children yeah. to come with him. Right. And... Basically, Willem Dafoe goes out and starts playing along with him mm. for a good five minutes mm. of him just being like, well, you know, it's really warm out. Why were you here? I want to get a soda. Well, let's go get you a soda. That sounds great. Let's get you a soda, buddy. And then he gets him the soda, gets him his chains back, and then slaps that shit out of his hand. He's like, get your fucking ass out of here. Yeah. That's all fucking awesome. Yeah. It's great. Willem Dafoe is fantastic. I can't. He is. Over time, he is just... just Notched notches on his belt over and over again. Yeah. And now looking back on it, he's just got a fantastic work of uh, in his career. So, yeah. um, but that particular scene in conversation between him and the creepy ass uh, vacationer who is trying to find poor children to prey on, yeah, uh, is is pretty great. Mm. So, yep. Sorry, that was kind of out of left field. No, that that that's, that's a sounds... good conversation. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I'm. <laughs> yeah, I'm now even more interested in seeing the Flora Project because I've I've heard like sort of like you know broad, um, enthusiastic praise for it, enthusive praise for it, but like I would like to watch it now. Yeah. It has a very um, interesting ending. Mm, yeah. I will say that yeah. um, leaves definitely some to the viewer's interpretation. There's a taste in your mouth. Got a very just art house ending. Yes. Uh, for a very straightforward film up until that point. And uh. it says a lot that my mother who watches God bless her 
a lot of shit that I throw at her. Oh, I mean, Lord. I would never yeah, right. like make her watch something right, that's right, just right. out of her comfort zone yeah. of misery or whatever. Yeah. But when it comes to like art house or whatever, she'll give anything a try and whatnot. Good and for her. Uh, even she uh, really liked the ending, mm. and she would like wanted to talk about it, and, you yeah. know, whatnot. So I, I think I definitely think that's a very good Oscar-y choice where you can see the prestige behind. Uh, not necessarily the production, but just like the the story and the kind of uh, otherworldness of it, and yet it also doesn't really alienate its audience in too hard. So, the other thing, and not to go off on too much of a tangent on that particular film, um, but there's a lot of questions raised in that film, like when little children commit a crime, are they guilty? Yeah. No, that wasn't my answer, but that is well, a question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lock I'm... them up. Lord. Oh, wait a minute. We already do that as a country. Oh. 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 Mm-hmm. Now we're getting. Now we're getting partisan. Getting into it? We're getting partisan. I don't mind it. We well, don't fucking care. We're anyway. pretty partisan. On this oh, podcast. yes, we are. It's not oh, like yes, we the are. three of us disagree on most yeah, issues. Yeah, we... We don't make it any <laughs> the few times where we actually like hint at the outside world outside of the film tank. We didn't tell you that the film tank is actually in a post apocalyptic bunker. Well, yeah. <laughs> we all are. Oh yeah. Now what's wonderful about mm. that particular part of the film though is it is this like kind of just nonchalant whimsical moment that happens and you're like, Oh, these children just committed a felony. Mm-hmm. Yep. But did they? Mm. I don't know. Mm. I, I don't know. I haven't. There are no crimes in Disney World. That's they're not. That is patently false. They're not. In, in fact, World. In, in fact, the crimes are probably even more severe for the fact that Disney is the law in well, Disney <laughs> Disneyland. What obviously is one of the poles of the movie is they're literally right next door to Disney in this weird trailer park. Uh, it's not an actual trailer park, but it is. Like here is the poor section. We don't. We pretend this doesn't exist. Yeah. And uh, uh, but it's a good movie. All because Disney wanted to build that park where he wanted to build it. Yeah. There, there's a lot of bad things about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That man stole all that land for the most part. Mm-hmm. Yep. Bought it. Proud American tradition. Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, there's a there is an unfortunate amount of um, comparisons but, between he and Daniel Plainview when it comes to buying of the land. <laughs> to be fair, needs though, to make a Disney version of, of There Will Be Blood. I'm abandoning my child. Oh, oh I'm abandoning my child. Uh, Smoke I, is billowing from behind the sky. I'm finished. <laughs> That was like kind of a goofy. Anyway, Bastard I will in a say, basket. I, I'd be oh I'd be very remiss if we didn't point out, just because <laughs> we are liberals, uh, that when Walt Disney made that purchase of that land, Joe Biden was there on the front lines protesting that purchase and the transfer of the deed. So anyway, anyway, <laughs> Florida Project's a good movie. Sorry for taking us off on an. Eight what movie were you talking about? Pulp Fiction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But we spent more time and more energy on Florida Project. Yeah, we should watch it someday, though. We should. We've come up with lots of those on this episode. It's always good. Hell yeah, yeah. write them all down. Yeah. If we were, if we were Dan, we would be writing it down furiously in our book right that now. That is true. Yep. Hi Dan. Hi Dan. <laughs> Tucson. He's gonna love that actually. I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. Good. Okay. So number three for me is a film that I've only seen once and. Hmm. I'm gonna to have to be totally honest. How dare you? I I fell asleep. 
watching it. <laughs> this is not okay. good. Uh, Wait, how did this get any worse? No, 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 no. But see, here's I also the, watched it on mute. No, 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 no. I have been meaning to come back to this film because I I know that this film is awesome, and I feel terrible. It's it, it wasn't for the fact of the film itself that I fell asleep. It's because I'm just a sleepy bitch and I fall asleep all the time. It happens a lot. I'm just a sleepy bitch. I'm just a sleepy Guess bitch. Guess who's you, getting a shirt with that on you, you, for Christmas? Oh my god. Like you guys know that. Like sometimes I, I fall asleep turn. No, we we're aware you're oh. a little sleepy bitch. I know. Yeah, whatever. Um, it's not you. But but, but see, here's the thing. Too. When I, I was like, when I saw this Absolutely. scene, I knew that this film was awesome, and I was trying to fight against the the inertia of of, of my ability of my necessity to sleep to watch it. Okay, and I still remember it, and I actually rewatched it today because it's that damn good of a scene. And it is from the Coen Brothers' 2005 adaptation of Cormac McCarthy's uh, No Country for Old Men. And it is the scene between Javier Bardem's character uh, Anton Shigra and the gas clerk, mm. the gas station clerk. Ah. That scene uh, hello, is – Hello, friendo. Hello, friendo. And <laughs> like he's – like they're just, they're just talking, just shooting the shit. Just, uh, just – it, it, like Anton is so like – not interested in talking to this this old man and stuff, right? And he's or just, is he? And then he <laughs> like he he makes like an offhand comment. It's like, oh yeah, so you're from Ohio, and I, and he just there's a visible change in his demeanor, and I'm just like, why are you asking about that? And I'm just like, because this guy is now inquiring as to his origin, sir. Why do you have an air tank with you? Yeah, exactly. So then, like, I can't breathe. <laughs> it, it goes it goes from this this back and forth. Where it's just a question of 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 like oh why oh I need to close up because like he obviously doesn't feel safe around this person like what time do you close up as like you know I close up you know when it gets dark dark is not like I like I close up around now now is not a time what time do you close up and it's like you know I I close up after dark do you live in that house over there yeah I live in that house over there with your wife yeah with my wife mm-hmm. it's like oh yeah it's like do you, do you own this 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 land is like it's like well you know like this this place it was owned by my my wife's uh, father, so I sort of married into. So you, so you married into it. It's like, yeah, I guess it's it's mine too. And it's like, okay, we're gonna flip a coin. And then it's like the whole coin flip thing is like you have to call it. And I'm just like, well, I don't know. What we're betting is like we're betting everything. It's like you have to call it. And it's like, well, I I don't want to call. It's like, yes, you are. It's like you've. I don't know what I'm putting up. And I'm just like, you've been putting oh. it, you've been putting it up your whole your entire life. And then you realize, you 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 long ago realized the stakes of this actual encounter and the fact that he actually narrowly skirts away from what would probably be all but certain death on just a coin toss and it's just like don't put that in your don't put that in your Not pocket to mention that's your lucky coin for the audience too at least first time watching it that you wouldn't have expected the coin toss to matter uh you know in that general kind of situation mm-hmm. and then you realize that that's how psychotic he is oh yeah is that he'll, he'll do everything that he does but also he's a man of his word that, which makes him creepier that is um and i know we me and you nick watched this i don't know like a year ago or so yeah it was recently yeah somewhat recently yeah. um that is i think one of the more overrated films of the last decade and a half hmm. um that is completely saved by a fantastic performance um, and, and on part I, of Javier Bardem, or yeah. Oh, yeah. well, I, I mean, Josh Brolin's good too, and yeah. so is Kelly McDonald. Like it, um, it is just—it's not the Coen Brothers' best work. But I even even so, having said that, 
um, I think that that scene alone is sort of indicative of some of the strengths of the Coen Brothers oh, with yeah. regards to mm-hmm. like like actual like dialogue heavy scenes and the fact that it was an adaptation. Uh, I just think that it 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 works so well because I'm used to like the Coen Brothers dealing with this sort of like very quippy like midwestern drawl repartee, whereas this feels like it, it it has an entirely different tone to it but it had it, it operates at the same speed but you can definitely like check that there's a totally different tempo and tone going on here i love um it's not a conversation but i do love the scene when he has to get the medical supplies mm. and he blows the car up yeah. to get everyone out of the <laughs> yeah. pharmacy so yeah. he can go steal all the medical shit mm-hmm. um like that is a really, really smart person, but at the same time, a really dumb person. Yeah. And it's the encapsulation. You're trying to swat of, a fly with an AK and you managed to actually like get the, get the fly. But did you really have to do that? No, it's it, like he is a, well, and I think he knows what his strengths are. Oh no, absolutely. which is only that because he's creating chaos out as a sore thumb. Uh, otherwise. Yeah. But yeah, that's, um, yeah, no, that's a, that is a A plus conversation right there. Good yep. call, Susan. Yep. So that's my number three. Okay. All right. Mm. Oh boy. My number two. Yep. Is a very kind of uh, touching and heartwarming conversation between a father and son. Oh no. In the movie Happiness. Oh. oh. Wow. A film from nineteen ninety eight. I can't oh. believe. I can't believe you've done this. <laughs> I cannot believe no, you've you, done. No, you, you, you can. I can, but I'm I also sure you, cannot believe I'm you've joking done. Joking aside about the tone of the scene, um, I remember when I first watched this movie, and of course, when you watch the movie itself, it's already uh, harrowing at places, and uh, you know, certainly depressing and whatnot. But you never truly expect it to reach the heights uh, of this scene, in my opinion. Heights or depths? Well. (laughs) It's all a matter of perspective, isn't it? Correct. It It depends on what you call quality cinema. Yeah. Um, And I'm not even talking about quality. I'm talking about just... just That's what I mean by heights versus depths. Right. So, um, personally, this is kind of what I... Not always. Obviously, sometimes I also want to be entertained. Mm But... Hmm. uh, this is what I definitely a lot of the time want out of cinema. I want to be challenged in some way because I'm not uh, – so I guess I should really quickly recap and say this scene takes place between a father and son, the father played by uh, Dylan Baker. Mm-hmm. And throughout the film, you as the audience know that this very boring uh, milquetoast uh, suburban – Salary man, yeah. Yes, right. suburban dad yeah. has one deep, dark secret, which is that he is a pedophile mm-hmm. and he's attracted to young boys. Mm-hmm. And and the movie never once, including the scene, uh, excuses that behavior, mm. uh, but it does mine the almost purgatorial hell that he's trapped in for some kind of pathos, whether you consider that to be comedy and or um, karmic. I uh, think he understands how hellish. Yeah. His his existence yeah. is and 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 it, you're right. It doesn't excuse it. It doesn't try to sympathize it or empathize with it at all. But really, it just starts to mine what it what it is like to be that kind of person in that kind of like situation. Yeah, and like it's just 
for a film to do that yeah. and to do it in the presentation that it does during that scene in which his son finally asks him point blank if – well, first he asks him basically for the sex talk. Um, and when he kind of stumbles – Which is fucked up in itself. Yeah, he kind of stumbles his way through wow. it while also being uh, way too blunt mm. for his uh, the age of his audience <laughs> um, <laughs> because he just gives uh, a very didactic – uh, physical explanation of what sex is without any context because he probably has no real emotional attachment to it in the normal sense because of his predilection in general. Yeah. And as it then blends from the sex talk to his son finally asking him point blank if he's a pedophile and if he had molested his friend, Ronald Farber. Um <laughs> And the tears that are streaming down the boy's face, not even like the greatest actor, but it's just a wonderfully done scene, Mm -hmm. um, then are matched by his own father after he completely admits it um, as the two of them just start sobbing. Uh, I got to say that scene is a masterclass in cinema when it comes to editing, when it comes to acting, because I also don't think that that kid was present for Dylan Baker's responses. Um, at least in some of them, because mm-hmm. of the way it's cut, and it's totally fine. I'm, he shouldn't have to have been, you know. But it's edited very seamlessly and whatnot. And I gotta say that while I don't sympathize with Dylan Baker's character or his plight, at a certain point, I can see the humanity behind his uh, existence, which is frankly a good lesson to learn about any bad person, because unfortunately, our enemies are humans, Mm -hmm. and if we deny that, then we will fail to understand what motivates them, what, you know, what can trap them, whatever. And I appreciated the film basically stating that there are bad people out in the world and that they are next door, and they are the very real person that you may even like because of what they do and what they don't do. Well, especially, too, you know, the time that this film came out, I I don't want to say that this was ahead of its time necessarily but um this was something that would have not been out in the open at this time like 1998 yeah like I mean, around, yeah. around the turn of the around the turn of the century i feel like that this is i mean the catholic scandal hasn't oh. came up yet well yeah. it just just the idea of um not not even necessarily just, un- understanding it, no, right. but at the same time, and, and I, I did, don't want to say accepting it all. No, no, but no, no. But it did beat the trend, too, of cinematically, of a very brief run of uh, pedophilia-minded stories, whether it's American Beauty with Kevin Spacey, ooh, uh, ooh, or, um, little, child- or little Children, um, oh. in which you know this was kind of... Sh- I would say a trend until it became a reality in yeah. real life, and then the scandal. I mean, it's always been a reality, yeah. But then we acknowledged it as such. But this was this was bringing it to the forefront, but um, with no resolution. Well, because I mean, because there isn't one, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, great performance by Dylan Baker, who is a completely underutilized performer for the yeah. most part. Absolutely, I can't um, imagine the fuck just getting that prompt and being like, okay, this. This is what I got to run with. How about the 
oddly comedic ending to that scene too. Mm-hmm. To yeah. that scene or to the movie, just so I make sure. Isn't that scene where he ends it by saying that he would just jack off instead yeah. of oh, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which yeah. Is, yes, which is so uncomfortable. <laughs> yes, so because yes, uh, and I'm just gonna spell it out for the audience in case they've never seen it, which is understandable. Yeah. Uh, the kid essentially, after he asked if he did molest his friend, mm-hmm. does that because he's a young boy, he's like. Would you ever? And he says, "Would you ever fuck me?" Mm-hmm. And the dad, through tears, uh, sopping wet, says, "Of course not. I would only jack off to you." <laughs> and that Lord level of an actual hierarchical, yeah, uh, sexual scale, trying to 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 to. Uh, uh... <laughs> It kind to, of to, that's, to, that to, breaks to contrive a, 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 a principle, that a actually, pretense of principles. <laughs> this is fucking. Oh my god! If you listen, it, I, makes, I, it makes I, it even worse that yeah. you try to like fucking create some type of hierarchy of principles no, no, I, around I, this fucking in like it, like. I have I have, limit, unre- I have unrepe- yeah. unrepentant yeah. act. Fuck yeah. you! I'm a good man. Fuck you! Yeah, I'm, um, I'm, I'm, w- I'm a gentleman. I'm, not, I'm a gentleman. Yeah. It's like the the, like the house a, the house that Jack. I wouldn't fuck my own child. I'm not a monster. Oh and my here's god! Here's the thing, though. I, like Ooh. if, if you listen, <laughs> if you've listened to this podcast and you've listened to me speak, I often am probably the one who's the most okay with transgressive cinema mm-hmm. in general. Yeah. Uh, There's a lot of films that I wouldn't have watched had I n- had you not introduced me to them. And it's I not that we're not against them. No, but no, no. But I mean, the one like I'm usually the one who wants to watch. Oh, you're, right, drive, yeah, you're yeah. driving the car, salivating. Yeah, yeah. But I will Give say money. this scene is the closest, and it's actually not the scene itself between them as far as all the ensuing dialogue. But it is actually that final line that is maybe the closest my brain has ever been broken mm. uh, by a immoral uh, line of dialogue where I can't quite even want to reconcile with it. And yet it begs to be reconciled right, with and right. that's, that. And it just fucks me up every time. That movie. And I, I think we brought this up or it wasn't on the episode. We were just chatting uh, a month or two ago, but that movie starts with a really <laughs> fascinating casting choice of John Lovitz. Who's actually great in it. Oh, he is. Uh, but he's basically, we see him march himself to his suicide. Um, and God, what a great casting choice. I mean, you think you're champagne, don't you? But you're not. <laughs> it's, uh, it's your shit. That's a good movie. It is. A great that's movie. a great movie. Actually, definitely hard to watch, but I would encourage anyone to try it because I don't think you cannot watch it. And at least a feel better about yourself mm-hmm. or Absolutely. not. If you don't know certain things about yourself. Uh, And B, to actually see something that is genuinely challenging, which I don't say about a lot of movies. Yeah. I will say. I was challenged when I watched Avengers Endgame. Well, we all were. Oh, yeah. I um, And I I don't want to say that we've arrived or anything like that. But I will say um, there have been a few recent experiences in the theater with independent cinema that um, I don't want to say goes too far because, I mean, yeah. there's the, what is too far. It's a moving it's a moving target that it happens is. every single um, yeah. But I feel like there are more people now on the wavelength of this kind of cinema than there were a decade ago. Absolutely. Yeah, I think 
if this movie was like quote unquote remade today where it was a similar thing and whatever, I think it would be accepted. But I think if you showed people this movie in and of itself as an artifact from 1998, it would be it's it's hard to watch because Todd Salons is not a visual filmmaker. So it is very uh, didactic in uh, in its presentation of. Uh, of these subjects and these people and whatnot. So you really are living only in the headspaces. Whereas someone like uh, a lot of these indie directors who are doing great work are coming on the scene with such great, I should say, visual flair and um, just uh, very out-of-the-box editing, whatever, that it, it does make certain things more palatable because what you're watching has a glossy veneer. But if you're going to watch Happiness, you're going to watch two and a half hours of Talking Heads talking about the worst of humanity yeah, and, mm. and nothing more. And if that sounds awful, then fine, you know, don't watch it. But give it a try. Philip Seymour Hoffman's in it. And it's one of his greatest performances, even though it's obviously one of his most uh, disturbing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. we didn't do an episode on that, did we? No, we did not. No, we did not. No, we did not. We watched it. Primarily because, like, I maybe even thought to do an episode one time, but never, whatever. But because you randomly one day said, hey, we should watch Happiness. <laughs> and I was like, okay, the next time we get together, we're watching it. Yep. Don't read Wikipedia. <laughs> like, yep. I was just hell-bent on were, making you, sure that we actually got to watch it. Uh, so whatever. You so. were like, I'm not going to lift it. I'm not going to look this gift horse in the mouth. I'm just <laughs> going to run with it. Yeah, no, um... The scene with Philip Seymour Hoffman, um, where he is pretty much given the opportunity to let his fantasy play out, and he just can't do it. That's the thing about fantasies. Well, Mm. yeah. He's um, much in the same vein of a lot of people in Mm -hmm. this current day and age, um, like to live out their thoughts from afar, and then they get close, and nope. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's weird how there are human beings on the other side of your shit. Yeah. Uh, boy, we could really learn that lesson, couldn't we? We we could, yes. Oh, some bad people, people should. Bad people cannot. Well, what's, what are bad people? Okay. Believe it or not, I uh, I made it seem like there was only one Tarantino film on my list. But in fact, there is a second. Okay, you whatever this scene is, mm-hmm. I will say I was surprised when you said that earlier that that scene was your sole Tarantino because if this is the scene that I think of it is, I was surprised that it would not be on there. So, Okay. So the scene that I've chosen for my number two is the opening scene of Inglorious Bastards. Bastards. Yep, mm-hmm. I figured as much. Between Hans Landa and uh, the Frenchman. I know I'm not crazy. Oh, no. <laughs> Uh, so just to set a scene for everybody, I've been a Tarantino fan for, you know, 15 years or so. Card carrying member. Sure. But, um, I really was not on the Tarantino train during the Kill Bill years. I, um, which is funny because Kill Bill was actually my first introduction to Quentin Tarantino. And. They're not bad. And for most people, I think it was like like there's it's and it's one of those films. I've that, been meaning yeah. for like five years to go back and watch them straight through because I've seen bits and pieces again. Um, but I, they're fun. Yeah, um, I will say that, uh, and I've said this, and you can disagree or not, but Inglorious Bastards was the start of the true mainstream Tarantino um, 
resurgence, in my opinion. I'd agree with that, in, in especially in this day and age of what we think about when we think about Tarantino. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I'm I'm onto what you're saying. Okay. So the wonderful thing about this this opening scene and this particular conversation is all elements surrounding it, which is this is really the American introduction to Christoph Waltz, even though his career has fizzled a little bit. Um, clearly, Tarantino knows what to do with this particular performer and puts him in an absolutely fantastic role uh, where he's playing a just fucking terrible person uh, as he is the Jew hunter during the you know, later days of the Nazi regime in World War II. And the scene involves he and a bunch of his Nazi soldiers driving up to this Frenchman's house uh, in the middle of, you know, the south of France or somewhere. It's not Paris or anything like that. It's just a French farming village um, where this Frenchman and his three daughters, it has a very, you know, whimsical feel to it. There's no mother in sight. One of the daughters is played by an early Lea Sedu. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, this is, this scene is basically Tarantino probably at his best, where he is writing just this terrible sort of villainous dialogue that is being masqueraded as this pleasant gentleman who has come calling and arrives to discuss everything with him. And basically, he is getting all of the information from this Frenchman who's got his guard up but is still giving him everything, even though he thinks he's not. Um, And this scene is incredible to start a film with because it is for the most part at the outset very unassuming you have a a farm village and you have a very pleasant gentleman coming in who's just trying to clear this man's family um and it is very much how unfortunately i even though this is takes a lot of liberties uh in terms of what actually probably really happened um, unfortunately, probably the most mill meaning of people can be coerced in becoming complicit in what is well. And, and the, the other thing is what else is this Frenchman supposed to do? Right. Like he's, he's told this guy comes in, he asks him for a glass of milk. He sits down, starts smoking his pipe, asks him just because he says he doesn't know how to speak French if they could speak English. Um, which is, I will say, a little, a little. Oh, he knows how to speak French. He's just, well, yes, yeah. but at the same time, that's a dual purpose from Tarantino, and that's where I feel like those kind of things are where he's at probably the height of his like top talent, where it both serves an absolute purpose in the story, but also too he knows that this is going to mostly play for American audiences, yeah. so we're going to speak this in English, uh, and we then progress with this scene where he's discussing all of these family members from other farms in the area and he sort of glosses past the people that he obviously knows are below them um and just continues this conversation with this man and drives him into um basically having to admit in this sobbing moment that yes i have jews in my house and then he's uh he, I'm sorry, Christoph Waltz's character of Hans Landa then changes the tone a bit and brings in some people to kill all the people in his basement. Um, 
it is i i'll say that scene is basically cinematic mastery in my opinion even if you don't love that film and i know that there are a lot of people who not that they don't like it but are kind of hit and miss on that film uh that scene is pretty much mastery from tarantino is it like is it fair to say that that is singularly the the breakout role if not the breakout scene for um what's his name who's playing christoph oh, christoph, christoph, christoph oh, yeah. waltz when it comes to like his indu- introduction into like u.s cinema mm-hmm. i mean yeah he really had been non-existent up in that point right in the u.s yeah yeah right. shows yeah. up in that film wins yeah. an oscar and right. then goes on to right. i mean and his career again as i mentioned is kind he of fizzled a bit to do the green hornet and yeah. he he came back won another he, oscar he, with tarantino in his next he film did that Django bond film that yeah. we don't like to talk about all joking aside i mean <laughs> he's he's okay with what he had to work with yeah right yeah, yeah it's, not his, really it's not his fault he's not the worst part of that film no. okay um but hey uh, Leia Sadu is in that movie that is yeah. true a reunion uh, as a Bond girl oh. she she gets her vengeance sort oh, of meow meow yeah um, but the that scene ends after that very uncomfortable conversation between Hans Landa and Monsieur Lapetit, the Frenchman, uh, with him murdering all of the Jewish residents who are living underneath his house, mm-hmm. except for Shoshana, who uh, played wonderfully by Melanie Laurent, has escaped. Um, and that's and a. When he says uh, au revoir, Shoshana. Well, that's a weird part because he obviously could kill her, but he decides to just let her go. Yeah. Um, is, is, you know, obviously it comes back to be his downfall at mm-hmm. the end, in a way. Um, but at the same time, um, that is a pretty crackerjack ending to just a wonderful scene that is um, horrible, but at the same time, wonderful to watch transpire. Mm-hmm. Um, and and really, the height of the worst parts of humanity, uh, especially when the conversation reaches Christoph Waltz comparing nazi germans to wolves and jewish people to rats and that they're the famine of the earth and that they need to be completely done away with and Mm. they uh will result to anything to survive and they will hide under floorboards and this is the reason trying to introduce this bullshit logic right and the reason of why this has happened and oh we're not going to kill your family because you are trying to hide them we're going to reward you because you're telling them that you're keeping them under here and it's like fuck these people and their basic bullshit and this shit's going to keep happening time after time after time again and it's going to keep happening because there are so many fucking stupid people out there yep who are just going to let this shit happen yep tale as old as time oh unfortunately yes unfortunately yes yeah but uh that's a wonderful scene and tarantino at uh top form in my opinion yeah. so that's uh, inglorious bastards and the scene between the frenchman and hans landa is my number two nice so my number two um this is a, a a strong candidate for number one but i think that my number one is just personally just one of my favorites so just going leaning into number two, it is the discussion um, from Ex Machina between Nathan and Caleb uh, regarding to the purpose or utility of 
Ava's sexuality. Mm-hmm. That is a, a conversation. There are multiple conversations in uh, Ex Machina between Caleb and Nathan and Caleb and Ava that still resonate with me, that are the reasons why I come back to that film and why I enjoy that film so much, um, even after having watched and talked about it as, as, as much as we have. But that one really sticks out to me because it really does sort of highlight what is so intrinsic and interesting about human consciousness and our conception of what consciousness is. And I'm just like, why do we have sexualities? Like, well, it's like the reason why he put sexuality, why he prefaced sexuality into Ava other than it being fun is that it then creates a, uh, uh, it, it manufactures a sort of biological imperative for a outside observer to then engage with that with that entity that he has created and it's interesting because he, he, he like he, he asked the question i was like you know is there any form of consciousness that doesn't have some type of like biological or sexual like dynamic to it what imperative does a black box have to speak to another black box and the whole idea of just ex- even extrapolating that to the idea of um gender or sexual preference and whether those aspects are programmed or not or elicited through either um, nature or nurture and how much of those actually come into play through not only how we interact with others but ultimately how we conceive of ourselves and how much consciousness really is just a matter of the ability to tell stories about ourselves and to contextualize our own experience respective to that of other people's experience. And so that's just like a whole wormhole that is just really fucking fascinating to me. And it's just a brilliant encapsulation of like a, like, like a, a really heady and, 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 and fascinating um, – <clears throat> A, 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 fasc- a, a fascinating observation about not only artificial intelligence, but just of the question of like what, if anything, like meaningfully distinguishes like human consciousness from that of what we might observe from other forms of consciousness, and whether or not the 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 observation of lesser consciousness is not due in part to other consciousness being lesser, but for the fact of our inability to interact with them and to engage and communicate with them. Well, I'll also say, too, about that conversation, uh, which is that while I would say a lot of the conversation in that movie certainly drives home or has this aspect, it's, I think that conversation yeah. in particular is where it's at its most pointed, which is the fact that it's almost also kind of a meta-narrative when it comes to uh, these a very patriarchal look yes, female autonomy. Absolutely, yeah. And so the way these two males are essentially discussing her sexuality, mm-hmm. whether it exists or doesn't exist, right. as something that is only beholden to their wants and needs, and in this case, literal manifestation. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, and obviously you could write about that through a lot of the scenes throughout the film, but it's there when it's those two guys literally, I would say, techno-drooling over the idea that this is possible. Not because they're, you know, so into it that they're, you know, whatever, but but that's like, of course, why why wouldn't this this be a possibility? And this is a construction. What other purpose would she have after she outlives her purpose? Oh, yes, yeah. Like, this is a construction of, of Ava's gender that is not by somebody who is either sympathetic or shares the lived experience of that gender, but somebody who is just rather just like gawking at it and just like, this is how I boil down the utilitarian 
function and, of this gender. I'm just and like, not only God, that, but then how what can a fucking dick? <laughs> and then he he even slips in a really fucking awesome joke in the middle of that. Like that's another cherry on top of like a really like heady. Uh, an awesome conversation. Yeah. There's a... Uh, what kind of girls do you like? Was, what, what, what's your type? And I was like, my type? And I was like, you mean yeah, women? Like, it's like, no, salad dressing. <laughs> I was like... Yeah. You like, you like black chicks? Yeah. <laughs> so let's say it's black chicks. <laughs> it's a... Re- that got to rise out of me in the fucking theater. Yeah. Like, Jesus Christ. An AI doesn't need a gender. She could have been a gray box. Hmm. Actually, I don't think that's true. Can you give an example of consciousness at any level, human or animal, that exists without a sexual dimension? They have sexuality as an evolutionary reproductive need. What imperative does a gray box have to interact with another gray box? Can consciousness exist without interaction? Anyway, sexuality is fun, man. If you're going to exist, why not enjoy it? My real question was, did you give her sexuality as a diversion tactic? I don't follow. Like a stage magician with a hot assistant. So a hot robot who clouds your ability to judge your AI? Exactly. So, did you program her to flirt with me? If I did, would that be cheating? Wouldn't it? Caleb, what's your type? Of girl? No, of salad dressing. Yeah, of girl. What's your type of girl? You know what? Don't even answer that. Let's say it's black chicks. Okay? That's your thing. For the sake of argument, that's your thing. Okay? Why is that your thing? Because you did a detailed analysis of all racial types and you cross-referenced that analysis with a points-based system? No! You just attracted the black chicks. A consequence of accumulated external stimuli that you probably didn't even register as they registered with you. Did you program her to like me or not? I programmed her to be heterosexual, just like you were programmed to be heterosexual. Nobody programmed me to be straight. You decided to be straight? Please, of course you were programmed. By nature or nurture or both. And to be honest, Caleb, you're starting to annoy me now because this is your insecurity talking. This is not your intellect. It's a really simple thing, but a great thematic moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they are both walking up the hill and they reach the exact same spot and then Dom Hall Gleason stops to like take a breath and Oscar Isaac starts going back up to the other top of the hill. Mm-hmm. God, it's just simple shit like that that just gives me hope that Alex Garland is going to be this fantastic filmmaker at some point in his yeah. career. Yeah. So we'll see. I think that he has it in him. Yeah. I mean, that conversation's I, the conversation early on where um, the two of them are discussing. He's just wanting to like get. What do you think about her? Um, and Caleb starts to like try to like sound smart. Yeah. And he just like gives stop trying him, to intellectualize everything. I just want simple, yeah. straight answers. Well, he gives him this detesting look, like he just like thinks he's the scum of the earth. Like, mm. God damn it, yeah. you're not smart. Yeah. Just tell me if you want to fuck her or not. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what a great film. We come back to it probably every four episodes on this podcast. Yeah, but it's fucking great. Reason. It's probably one of the best films to be released in like the past ten years. So. Yeah. Yeah. So we've arrived at we, number one. We've arrived at the summit. Oh, boy. Yeah. Here always always a great time on these episodes. But uh, it's uh, fun to um, always you know go through and hear what everyone's thoughts are and and why they've arrived at their certain uh selections but we always get to the top it's always great to hear what was the very tippy top of everyone's list so this will be fun number one well my number one is from a 1993 movie by mr mike lee entitled naked Mm. starring david lewis Mm -hmm. 
in this movie, uh, David Lewis plays a vagabond named Johnny, who ends up couch surfing uh, his way because he's homeless and uh, degenerate, so he can't quite keep a job and or uh, any place of residence, uh, although he would probably say that that's on purpose. Mm. And mm-hmm. as he l- makes it to his friend's house, uh, who's also an ex-lover, eventually he overstays his welcome by only a few hours there and is forced to uh, go co-mingle on the street for a while. And while he's out and about, he meets Brian, the security guard, mm. who is... Mm-hmm. Uh, who is doing his night job, and Brian sees him out in the cold and invites him in because he's a nice person. And the 10 to 15-minute sequence that ensues from that point on is probably what I have in my mind as cinema made for me. I I mostly just want to see two people talking shit and expounding off philosophical ideas nonstop, but not in a completely dry way, because I think Don Johnny, played by David Lewis, um, is certainly a, a cad <laughs> and a little rascal, and he is so charming at being an asshole, uh, in, in this particular instance, an intellectual asshole, that I find it just fascinating to watch and the conversation that ensues between the two of them where Johnny picks on Brian even though Brian has graciously let him in from the cold for the night uh, but he picks on Brian to validate his own existence and the importance of his own job uh, is just endlessly fascinating it, it runs the gamut as a conversation between a personal level of what Brian's existence or Johnny's for that matter means in the grand scheme of things to ridiculous conspiracy Conspiracy theories where he cites both uh, Bible books uh, to Nostradamus to uh, the number 666 to barcodes and how that is the mark that will, you know, signal the apocalypse. Mm -hmm. And they just keep going through all this. And Brian is such a well-written one-off character because we only get to see him exist in this scene. I've only seen the film the once, but he's... Definitely the polar opposite of him, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And but he's not in a uh, truly argumentative way. Mostly just in a No, but he's trying what I believe. He's and, trying to be he's trying to be the answer to his questions. Absolutely. And yeah. what I like, of course, uh, about that scene is that at the end of the day, they're more alike than they would probably mm-hmm. admit because uh, there's a great exchange where, of course, at one point Brian says because uh, Johnny mentions God and Brian says, you know, you don't believe in God. And then Johnny says, of course I fucking believe in God, which is actually probably true because Johnny can't quite explain and he would be the first to admit because he famously in the movie earlier says that you can read as many books as you want but there will always be things that you never ever 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 fucking understand and so johnny is also the first person to admit that he is a cosmic uh, blip that means nothing in the vast uh, universe of everything but his uh tango with brian the security guard is great uh the opening when he first gets there and he sees what brian has to do for a living which is he literally has a little gadget that uh pings his, uh, shall we say, there there are stations set up beside throughout this entire office building. I think he said there's like 27 in total. So what he has to do is every four minutes be at the next one mm. to uh, um, register that he was there and that he checked everything. And Johnny, of course, says, well, couldn't they have trained uh, 
small chimp to do that, or a big chimp with a or a big chimp. And then he says a small chimp with a bigger device, and he's like, yeah, I suppose they could, but and then he's like, well, isn't that pretty meaningless? And he's like, well, I don't know. I mean, this isn't this technically recording my existence every four, and that's what starts this whole thing, and um, it it just goes into this huge whirlwind of ideas, and it's also very much built into Johnny's need to be. In a, in a moment where he hates other people because he finds himself inferior to them, or superior to them, and yet he also needs other people because without them he can't... No one's listening to his bullshit. Yeah, he has nothing to measure. Right. Like he can't validate it. himself on his own principles. Right. He needs other people to spout them off and to put down and whatnot. Um, and I, I just absolutely love that scene. There's so many uh, great He's a malignant quotes. narcissist. Uh, yeah, and I love when Johnny first comes in too when he lets him in from the cold. He's like, "And what goes on in this postmodern gas chamber?" <laughs> and he's like, "Nothing. It's empty." And he goes, "Well, what do you exactly do you guard?" Because he's a security guard. He's like, "Space." And he's like, "Well, that's pretty fucking stupid because I can come in here, steal the space, and you would never know because it's fucking space." And <laughs> and that's when they go off on their you know tangent and whatnot. But yeah, no, it's just fantastic because the two of them get so wrapped up in each other's ideology. And this was, I mean, in in so many other movies, this is kind of like a meet-cute in some way because these two people are actually having a profound experience with the other. And I don't think Johnny completely hates Brian, and nor does Brian get completely annoyed by Johnny because they keep entertaining each other and uh, each other's ideologies. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, that's all Johnny was made for are these passing moments uh, with other people that he will always out uh, overstay and... That also ties into what they're talking about, which is that Johnny considers himself a, you know, and humanity at large, a, a passing fad, and that, you know, humans are just, as he puts it, a crap idea. <laughs> and that's kind of what he excuses his own behavior as to be okay with and whatnot. But the two of them, I think it's just a microcosm of that movie as a whole, uh, but definitely as what I personally love about cinema, which is two people just going at it and relentlessly trying to trip the other person up. The other thing that's great about both that scene and that film in general is that David Thewlis's character of Johnny um, pretty much encapsulates everything that he despises, Yeah, um, which is fascinating. Because... Yeah, no, I mean, a lot of what Johnny says, and especially in this scene, is this vapid conspiratorial, um, you know, language and yet when he says it he's slightly charming in his repulsiveness hmm. that he is an intellectual at heart and whether that gives him any credence to what he says really shouldn't and yet it does because especially of the way David Thewlis plays it um, and I'd be lying if I just thought that Johnny no matter being no matter the fact that he's a horrible person when it comes to morals and whatnot especially if you've watched the opening scene of that movie hmm. um he is an undeniably entrancing figure to watch uh, on his cinematic night o- night odyssey that he takes uh, on that one night. And, um, and there are so many other fascinating conversations in that movie, like the one he... But the exact opposite of this one in that movie is where he meets the guy who will not stop shouting his girlfriend's name. And so then he just starts shouting it too. And so he, he is able to literally dumb himself down and be as vapid as the person he is, you know, talking to. But when he meets someone unexpectedly, like Brian, the security guard, who it throws will, him off, it does. And it makes him even more smarter than he appeared back, you know, a few scenes ago. Beca- or does it? Or does it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, uh, 
the scene in which I entitled Johnny and the Security Guard uh, from the movie uh, Naked is just pretty much the epitome of the kind of movies I like, which are people in a room just shooting the shit and uh, making me think. And I would say, too, that even though it's such an intellectual scene, I would say, for me at least, it's a slightly emotional one because I think Johnny is kind of taking a liking to Brian as a person, as a friend or whatever, and yet his nihilism just digs him deep into not letting him actually uh, cross over the aisle to extend an olive branch in any type of argument and whatnot. And yet, if he would just let himself connect with other people in a way that he doesn't, um, you can see that he could have these very fruitful conversations and uh, relationships with other people. He's just more interested in himself than he is with others. Well, and the other thing about Johnny, even though with the character he is, uh, we've talked about this through different characters throughout time uh, on this podcast, but he is definitely a character who hates himself more than anybody else, yeah. even though he has and a very high the... opinion of himself. He hates everybody. Yeah. He hates himself more than anyone else. And he'll be the first one to be proud to say it because he'll think that that somehow makes him smarter. And <laughs> or uh, you yeah. know, and I've been uh, In- intellectual self-flagellation. Yeah, yeah. So and so in a lot of ways, I would say Johnny is an a horrifying cinematic idol of mine, which is I never want to be like him, and yet sometimes at my worst moments, I feel like him. Mm, yeah. So. yeah. Well put. Yeah. Nick. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Okay, <laughs> moving on to my number one. Uh, actually, this is the one that includes somebody from a previous conversation. Okay. Is it James Caan? Uh, it is not. Uh, I was actually going to say earlier that I actually feel really bad that James Caan's career has went down the shitter because I, I actually think he's a really good performer. He is when mm. he tries. Yeah. Mm. That's okay. So, anyways, um, the film I'm going to have is a film filled with many, many, many great conversations. As This is a film that is just a collection of two-person conversations, and you could really pick a ma- majority of the conversations throughout this film and say why is this great and why is this enjoyable and whatever but i picked the one that is probably the loudest and the best out of the bunch uh and that is the film for or that is the scene from the uh script written by aaron sorkin and steve jobs uh in the fabulous scene between michael fassbender and jeff daniels uh, where the characters of Steve Jobs and John Scully uh, are basically hashing out their shit after some shit went down many, many years ago. Um, and even though, obviously, this film takes a lot of creative liberties, um, this particular scene, one of the reasons why I love it so much is because this is a scene that really encapsulates the idea of a conversation hitting a crescendo as it starts out very slow builds up throughout and then hits a fever pitch as people are shouting at each other but for good reason and um also too it is weirdly because it, it's a like a pretty mainstream movie steve jobs is but this this character that Steve Jobs is throughout and the character of John Scully are these these weird egotistical people that obviously have very high opinions of themselves but also low opinions of themselves at the same time and 
I'm not trying to compare it at all to the conversation from mm. Naked, uh, but at the same time, the idea of matching wits of two mm-hmm. people who actually don't like themselves yeah. is very apparent. And the value that they think the other is going to place upon mm-hmm. that, even though the other person doesn't give as much of a shit about them as they think that they would. Yeah. yeah. And we do see conversations in every single part of Steve Jobs, as there are three main sections of the film, for anyone mm-hmm. who hasn't seen it. We see conversations between Michael Fassbender and Jeff Daniels in every uh, one of those three sections. Um, but this one is definitely the most shouty, the most emotional, and also, too, probably the most fulfilling, I would say, um, as we see Steve Jobs, at least in this film, at his absolute lowest, uh, where he has been fired from Apple, uh, the company he helped create, and he's now basically creating the shell company uh, and just in hopes that he gets hired back by Apple. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the idea of him just trying to make Jeff Daniels feel bad about having him fired, but at the same time also let him know that he doesn't feel bad about it, although he clearly does, um, is fantastic. And this scene does linger on for probably a good nine minutes. And it is um, really good. I mean, Jeff Daniels is a really weird actor because he has had a just a very bizarre career I mean, the idea of him being in stuff like Dumb and Dumber uh, and then being on... To be fair, he said, like, not to be fair, but just in general, like, mm-hmm. behind the scenes, he said he mostly took Dumb and Dumber because he was tired of doing some of the roles that he was mm-hmm. doing prior to it. So he took that in a very self-aware way and not in a Johnny Depp, like, I'm going to put on a costume and be silly. But um, to be fair to myself... yeah. That's my introduction into Jeff Daniels, oh, so yeah. I assume that's yeah. who that is. Right. <laughs> uh, th- this, this Actually, scene... my introduction was Fly Away Home, starring him and Anna Paquin about <laughs> the ducks. Just wanted to throw that out there. Lord. That, that was is, a great movie when I was a kid. That is the first time that film has been referenced on this podcast. Probably in 20 years <laughs> by <Yeah>. anybody. <laughs> I love the film Steve Jobs. It was my favorite film from that year. Um, it is one of my 50 favorite films of all time. Oh, wow. Uh, if you've, A, never seen it or only seen it once, um, it is, I don't know if it's at his best, but it is Aaron Sorkin delivering just, just diarrhea's worth of dialogue throughout a film. And, um, really hitting on a lot of levels on a super relevant topic when it comes to Silicon Valley uh, and Apple and the idea of the advancement of technology through the late 20th and early 21st century. The egos and ideas that sort of built that. Well, and the idea that it did really just start with these two guys in their garage and they built this trillion dollar company for the most part. Yeah. Um, and you have this extremely depressed person in Steve Jobs uh, who has very low self-worth, but at the same time creates this persona of being this larger-than-life god-like figure. Yeah. He even talks about how proud he is in the first section of this ridiculous commercial that they've created about their product, which uh, Jeff Daniels delivers a Fucking fantastic! A fucking fantastic! Uh, <laughs> I thought you meant that. What's up? Fucking! Oh no! Sorry. Anyway, the, I've watched a bit too much of the Irish sitcom named Father Ted, where they say fucking all the oh, time. Sorry, Ben. 
No. I wish I would I would have been on the same wavelength, but I have no idea what that okay. is. So, yeah. Anyways, he <laughs> delivers this and he talks about that same Super Bowl ad as he previously worked with Pepsi saying, you know what, we also didn't have this grand ad, but we also didn't say that people would die if they didn't fucking buy our soda. Um, yeah, it just gets down to the crux of it, which is that Steve Jobs has created this ridiculous ideal that this phone or this computer or this music player is this thing that it is not, which is this grand instrument of humanity when in reality he's created just this computer and he's trying to sell it for lots of money. But also, to his credit, like, does Apple even work if they don't talk about their products like that like that has been their mo That's their brand. since they became what they are now yeah. you and know. in it's a in, lot of posturing that they then sort of like ma- managed to measure up in in subsequent generations and yeah. then like in they in fairness they have, it, oh yeah oh, to say it's brought up uh what do you do you don't, oh, right. you don't create anything i am the conductor mm-hmm. and since steve jobs died what have they done to innovate? Yeah. It's true, and it, it, it's one of those things where it's like Apple is the only company I can think of that actually made keynote presentations part of their public brand. Yeah, which is fucking crazy to think, but yeah. that became ultra popular. Yeah, no, I mean, I when I was like in like late middle school, uh, early high school, I was watching those every WDCC. Uh, and I don't. I no longer watch them because I'm no longer an Apple fanboy because I'm yeah. an adult. And I will say that because <laughs> I, I know not to uh, conflate my own like like yeah. identity. And with I say that, that as the, someone who has Apple products, like right. iPhone, and yes, I will probably almost always have a Mac computer because I grew up on it. Right. Um, but like I bought a Chromebook the other day. I'm branching out. <laughs> um, but yeah, actually, one thing I will say too about that movie is that if I had to pick just for fun a scene from that film, it would have actually for me been the scene you just referenced. Uh, between him and Steve Wozniak, uh, the not the final one, but the the one where they talk over by the chairs and um, oh, that's see that that the great thing about that middle part is it's the same section mm-hmm. that the yeah, conversation say, happens with part Jeff Daniels um, <laughs> is that it is not the beginning or the end; it is the middle yep. where all of this shit is clear, but at the same time, like. These are people just living their lives, yep. and they have to fucking deal with each other. And, and it's Steve Wozniak, the character at least, at his most frustrated when he finally just asks, what do you do? You mm-hmm. know, and, and it's no matter what Steve Jobs' answer is in that movie, like there's nothing more poignant than Steve Wozniak even presenting that question to a person like Steve Jobs. But the, the idea that Steve Jobs would give any response other than a demeaning response. Right, yeah. And, and, yeah, yeah. and uh, that that's just a really, really, really good movie. I mean, I, I, it's a great movie for conversations. It is. Uh, it is. And Aaron Sorkin's a great, even if it's a film that you I know, will. Oh, go ahead. Yep. I was sorry. I was really quickly going to say, if I had an honorable mention, one thing that just missed the top six for me was the opening bar scene in the social network. Oh, uh, yeah. Between Jesse Eisenberg and Rudy Marin's That's character. a great scene. Yeah. Um, so that was pretty much right on the cusp, and it only didn't make it because of the other six, but that's gonna pretty think... much the epitome of me uh, locking me in a room for five minutes with two characters just doing screwball dramatics by 
uh, Aaron Sorkin. Yeah, you're gonna think that girls aren't gonna like you because you're a nerd, and I want you to <laughs> honestly know that it's not because of that. It's because you're a fucking asshole. And I was mm-hmm. like, yes. yep. yep, that is accurate. And that's a lot of, of people. The... A lot of people need to hear that fucking line. <laughs> Holy shit! Well, I mean, in not to go off uh, anything further, we've had an entire episode on Steve Jobs on this podcast before. Yeah. Um, but Michael Fassbender delivers a Oscar-worthy performance that he unfortunately missed out on because of Leonardo DiCaprio in The Revenant, even though I love that movie. That was bullshit. <laughs> Clearly, uh, Michael Fassbender is a much better performance in this particular film, in my opinion. Uh-huh. Uh, and he is just this terrible person who uh, wants to say that his daughter is not his. and his. Well, at the same time claiming her... In some way, some no. Way. It, I mean, that, that's a true line sense. throughout the film. Yeah. But at the same time, um, he tries to hide his emotional investment, so to speak. I would mm-hmm. say, yeah. yeah. In that he wants nothing to do with any of the hard work that comes along with it, but he would gladly take credit for any of her more positive. Man, quality. the patron saint of deadbeat dads. What a fucking idiot. Yeah. Yeah. What a genius fucking idiot. I was going to say, Steve Jobs, though, um, through his flaws, obviously, yeah. still goes down as a, um, I don't want, I don't want to say a martyr, but he... Uh, he He's de- definitely... He went down at a good time for himself. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I feel like if he would have went on further, um, you know, could have been... You know, yeah. and I, I don't want to say that, like, it's good that he died or anything like that, no. but, like, people like... He would have gotten canceled. Well, people like Kurt Cobain dying when he did at mm. the height of his popularity. Mm. It's good for people to remember him like that, where now people be like, oh, that asshole. Yeah. Oh, fuck yeah. that guy. Anyways, so I love that film and that scene, and um, that was my number one. Yeah. So my number one is very interesting because I have been, like, basically leading up to this epi- this this moment now in this episode i've been sort of like ping-ponging between two conversations involving the same characters between two films and we've already talked about these films on this podcast before but then i realized that what is not important is necessarily the substance but the performance that elevates it that's that's the reason why it, it speaks so personally to me that it is on the top of this list that I have to mention it. And as soon as I thought of it, I knew it was going to be at the top of this list. So I have to say um, my number one is from the movie The Matrix. Uh. is the conversation between Neo and the Oracle. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yeah, Gloria Foster. The reason why I, I guess that the conversation is on my mind again is because there's the recent news and rumors and like – the, the the sort of rumblings of a of a possible continuation of the Matrix franchise, the Matrix the Matrix series, uh, guided by the Wachowskis. Nope, um, not interested. And I yeah, I, I totally understand that. <laughs> it I, sounds I, like it's happening. I, it sounds like it's happening, whether we want it wanted to or not. Well, Chris, guess hey, Christopher hey, Lloyd hey, just hey. talked about how he wants Back to the Future to come back. Hey, hey, please don't. Hey. Alex, now you know how I felt when I heard about the announcement for a Ghost in the Shell film, let alone a fucking Akira film, okay? I listed those two films on my fucking, like, top six Mm -hmm. for this episode for, Mm -hmm. like, singular moments, and now I get to see them – I got to see one of them being just, like, absolutely butchered by, like, this this 
and honestly, oh, you know what's direct- coming for the next one. Oh, it is. But I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm just bracing myself for it. Just getting ready. Getting You're trying re- to be hopeful, but I'm you, trying, you know, I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be hopeful. But you know, you know, you, you, you know what's on. You the know other, what's coming. You know what's on the other sure. side of that door. But you anyway, so God damn it. Thinking about like the possibility of a new Matrix film and how even one would even work after um, the original trilogy, whether it should be. Like either a whole reboot or should it be um, – it could be a reboot and it could be a continuation given the nature of the actual like series itself and like the cyclical nature of it. But just thinking about like you know there are some things that cannot be necessarily replicated from that time and one of them is just the masterful performance of Gloria Foster who unfortunately <laughs> passed away before the – the final installment in that trilogy and needed to be recasted and sort of like retconned. She was way. saved. She, uh, she, in my, <laughs> she, in my opinion, um, is the most important character in the Matrix trilogy. More so than Neo, more so than Morpheus, more so than Trinity, more so than Smith. I feel like the the gravity and the 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 matriarchal wisdom and insight that she brings to just the one scene that she's in in that film, let alone in the second film. That's what I'm ping-ponging between the two of them because they're both fucking great scenes that not only like show off a masterful performance, but also just sort of encapsulate what are the core themes of those respective films. And the fact of like her just... And the fact that, 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 that bringing the two together just really just brings out what is the best in, in both of those. It, it, it honestly just like elevates both of those scenes by having having seen both of them it's awesome um yeah just the whole just the whole nature of how she actually talks to neo and just like entreats him and doesn't like give him the solid answers that he might be looking for because it's not about that's the whole point of her of her whole dialogue that it's like i could tell you who you are, but that's not going to be who you are. You're just going to be following in a performance of somebody else. Like you really have to come to your own answers and understand that there is a difference between knowing the path and walking the path. And that's something that even Morpheus said at the end, because he knew that he probably had an exact same conversation just like that. And he came to that realization on his own. And it's just like how she talks about you know it's like being the one is like being in love like nobody can tell you that you are you just know it bones the bones the brain you just know it and and you just got to get it through your fucking head dumb dumb you just got to listen you got to actually hear what it is that i'm saying versus what you want to hear and like i feel like that this just the nature of that conversation itself is in such stark defiance to a lot of the fucking like theories that are like thrown at this fucking film, and I'm just like, oh, you, we all know two you, sons favorite. You really gotta just fucking listen to what this woman is saying. Just listen to her. It's like, what do you mean, without him? Are you sure you want to hear this? Morpheus believes in you, Neo. And no one, not you, not even me, can convince him otherwise. He believes it so blindly that he's going to sacrifice his life to save yours. What? You're going to have to make a choice. In the one hand, you'll have Morpheus's life. And in the other hand, you'll have your own. One of you is going to die. 
Which one will be up to you? I'm sorry, kiddo, I really am. You have a good soul. And I hate giving good people bad news. Oh, don't worry about it. As soon as you step outside that door, you'll start feeling better. You'll remember you don't believe in any of this fate crap. You're in control of your own life. Remember? Here. Take a cookie. I promise by the time you're done eating it, you'll feel right as rain. It's a great scene and conversation because in a franchise especially that's so, I would say, rigid, which I don't mean in a bad way, but just adherence to a certain set of coding and rules as to what this universe can do and whatnot. It's such a good dressing down of the Matrix and the fantasy that you would have of what the Matrix can and cannot do, and it humanizes a very... cold concept of what the Matrix yeah. is. Which and, is, and the uh, fact that that, that, that that humanization comes through the dialogue of a character that is functionally inhuman and yet that we learn in the next film why that inhuman character is able to do what they do and why are they so fundamentally, momentously important to all of the events that we are watching transpire on screen and, and and it's like from now I'm just gonna ping pong from like that mm. that one to the, the to the second performance from Gloria in the second film where it's just like she explains that there's no such thing as fucking magic in the Matrix like everything that you see everything that you see is just a, a, an extension of a program that's doing something that it's not supposed to be doing and obviously that's meant to foreshadow the fact of like the ghosts that like show up with the Merovingian and other stuff like that but really it's also talking about her own nature the fact that like you know I'm not she doesn't come out and say it it's like but she can't tell the future right. and so really how is it then that she is able to give off the appearance that she is predicting these things and then when you understand that and when when it when you finally coheres as to who she is what is her nature what is the nature of the matrix like that is such a colossal like revelation and the fact that it's just hiding in plain sight like that it's just so well done it's a great rebuke too of what Neo believes his journey is going to be right. because he only gets seduced by the idea not simply to unplug and finally be conscious of this world at large, mm. but because he thinks that this will lead to a more, uh, shall we say, forward-thinking and yeah. fulfilling exactly. uh, destination. Exactly. And yet he's, of course, being told a very cold, hard truth, which is just because you have knowledge of the world around more knowledge mm-hmm. does not mean you're going to be any more enlightened of your place within it. Right, exactly. And and really that it it just comes down to grappling with that fact and finding the answers for yourself. And like there's Well, one... sorry. Yeah. If I can really quickly. Yeah. That particular scene uh in the first film makes the payoff at the very ending that much better. Yes. Because this idea of him basically thinking that because she's given him a non-answer that it's an answer in and of self mm-hmm. and that he then obviously believes in himself at the ending and has that fantastic finale where he stops the bullets and everything. Um, that ending would not have been as good without that scene that precedes it, you know, an hour before in the right. runtime. Right. So, yeah, no, that's... And 
that scene, even though it's kind of a not like integral part of that scene mm-hmm. um, when he knocks over the vase. Uh, but even then, I mean, that, that then foregrounds like once you like come back to that after having watched the second film mm-hmm. and like learned about that stuff, like holy fucking shit, <laughs> holy fucking shit. It's not that the vase is prone to break. It's that the vase always breaks, and this is not the first time that we've met. This is not the first time that we've done this shit. Like, oh my god! And it, and it's not like like communicated to you for like this 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 smash cut like uh, uh, montage of like different people walking through that same door. But it basically like comes at you with the same force of that effect. It just doesn't lay, lay lay it out as obviously, and I and I really enjoy that. But there is one line, I guess, from the second scene from the from the second film that I've come back to um, recently. Um, I don't know, just down about the state of the world in general, and just like the 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 scene where Neo was talking about. It's like, well, so why are you helping us? And like she basically says, like you know. We're all here to do what we're all here to do. Is like there's only one thing that I'm that I really care about, Neo, and that's the future. And believe me, I know the only way that we're gonna get there is together. And I was just like, I really needed to hear that. Holy shit! Ah, uh, I miss Gloria Foster so much. I I'm actually like, if if um this is just like sort of talking out loud. I was like, if there is more news that moves on like a matrix film being announced or like even being shown and stuff like that. I definitely would like to pitch an article like talking about like the significance of Gloria Foster's role in those original films and what that's just one thing that, that, that why the matrix franchise, the matrix series is so enduring and something that just cannot be replicated by in a continuation, but you still have to go on. So, this so here's yeah. the only thing I will say about, and I'm getting away from the conversation right, yeah, aspect, yeah. but about the Matrix right. and the idea of there being another film. Yeah. The only reason I would be at all interested in another film is to sort of make good on the shit final film of that series, and I don't feel like that would be the reason why. So I'm not that interested. Yeah, I think that. And, and we've we've already sort of had this conversation before. Is like I can just to- like the vase, yeah, just like the vase. No, you've got an absolute classic film, in my opinion. Yeah. you've got a really good film, and you've got a fucking turd. Yeah, and, I mean, and, it's, it's just yeah. so, sort of comes down to the fact that like the second and the third film are essentially one film, just split down the middle. Well, and the, not, the, and not, the second not, and the not second if, half not if you is not that good. It. Not if you separate. I, them. I, I know, I know, I know exactly. Yeah. It's like like it's thematically, they're they're basically like encircling the same drain. Mm. Um, yeah, that third film, I. I I don't have anything like very like yeah very effusive there, to there's say. There's not much there. There's not there's not a lot there. But even then, like taken as a whole, I feel like those two sequels, um, for for whatever their faults and their faults are apparent, mm-hmm. um, they do uh, meaningfully build out the the universe of the matrix in such a way that then we're able to then come back to the first film and see things from a different light. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. So. Uh, really quickly. I just want to throw something at you here yeah. just to help you with your article. Did you know that um, Neo is an anagram of the word one? Oh yeah, I did. Oh, I feel stupid. Yeah. Blew my wine. Oh wow. Yeah. 
Thank you, Nick. Anyway, that is my number one sitting at the top of the pile, sitting at the top of the mountaintop. Um, yeah. The tippy top, the, as Alex the tippy top, very yeah. elegantly put it earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Neo and the Oracle from The Matrix. Yeah. <laughs> tippy top. Ah, damn. Well, if anyone out there uh, listening to this episode has any sort of conversations from a film that you really enjoy that you wanted to let us know about, always feel free to send them on to us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. To find our episodes, you can always find us on filmtankshow.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher at Film Tank Show, where always you can go and rate or review our podcast, which is awesome. And you can try to find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Film Tank Show. Coming up on our next episode, a friend of ours is going to be here, hey. and her name is Sam. Hi. And she's great. Yay. And she's going to be joining us for an episode on a film that I am fucking dreading, which is the new Ari Aster film, Midsummer. Yay! Yay! Jazz hands. A24. 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 <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Ooh. So I'm not sure about this one. But at the same time... That's because you stupid. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. Um, I will say, just from a little bit of the promotional material, I am cautiously optimistic about maybe enjoying this film. Yeah. So we'll see. Yeah. Um, but Hereditary, obviously... I think you mean Hereditary. <laughs> garnered a pretty solid following. And... Um, this is pretty crazy that Ari Aster was able to throw this whole thing together in under a calendar year. So yeah. uh, Midsummer is going to be the next film we talk about on this podcast. Woo. So looking forward to that coming up on episode 197. From Tucson Egan and Nick Cheney, hey. myself, hey. Alex Diekman, thank you very much for joining us on this top six film conversation episodes. We'll be catching up with you next time here on Film Day. Take it easy. All right. <laughs>